News, views, opinions, and attitudes. Attitudes. There's actually uh, intriguing talk. You know, they talk about the news. And you have to respect them for that. You're listening to Right On Radio. Hey, welcome to Right On Radio. The tagline of the show is live right in the real world, where we talk about what's happening in the real world, both visible and invisible. And then you decide the right way to live in it. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, he's back. Tim Cohen, the author of Antichrist in a Cup of Tea, first and second edition amongst many many other works. His website is prophecyhouse.com. I would really encourage you to go there and dig in. And today we're going to be talking about the end days, the tribulation, the rapture. And one of the things that I'm most excited about is I have been studying these things now for a couple of years, uh, fairly intent with intention. But uh, along the way, you run into people like Tim Cohen, who just has a way of seeing the scriptures that I had never considered before. And so it's really interesting. And the depth of God's word, we're never going to get to the bottom of it. it. It's so deep and every word is intentional and there's numbers and there's all kinds of things that contribute. So I'm going to ask that you watch with an open mind and I'm going to ask that you don't trust Tim or Jeff. You be the Berean and dispel the myths that you've heard other people repeat and repeat and repeat over time and actually just go to what God says in his word. So the intention of this program is to, first of all, get you to go into God's word. We will actually, first of all, we want to glorify Jesus Christ. We want you to get into his word. We want you to be more spirit-filled. We want your faith to increase. And we want you to enjoy the ride that we're about to go on uh, because this world is getting good, but we're pointing and looking in all of the right places. And one of my favorite all-time guests, I got to say, uh, <laughs> author Tim Cohen, welcome back to Right on Radio. Thank you, Jeff. Happy to be here. So, Tim, I'm going to show you my biblical expertise today <laughs> and right. and this is going to be a real iron sharpens iron episode or that's best case scenario worst case scenario it's going to be iron sharpens a doll blade <laughs> and i'll let oh, the audience doubt figure out which one of those <laughs> i am <laughs> yeah I, I doubt that you're a dull blade well you know i uh I was, I've been a Christian for 25 years. The first few years I poured into the scriptures. Then I black slid for a number of years and, you know, then here I am again. And, and now I'm really digging in and I'm not trusting man anymore. 
you know, one of the corrections I've had to make on here was, you know, I kept talking about a great harvest because I had heard it repeated so many times I believed it. And then when I searched the scriptures out for myself, it's actually falling away. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> you know, and, and that's just an example I, I tend to use over time. But there's a lot of timelines I want to talk about. And I do want to get into uh, the rapture event uh -huh. and the way you presented it was just I'd never heard it before and I really want to explore it greater but Tim I had a, a great guest last week and towards the end of the show uh, we were talking about I had mentioned that uh, we had identified uh, Charles as the AC and he had brought up a point and I'm not doing this to undress but it was done on the show so I wanted I knew we would get the answer he said well doesn't that person have to be a prince? He's now a king, so wouldn't that eliminate him? And also, he's supposed to be an Assyrian, uh, so wouldn't that eliminate him? And I've also heard people say, doesn't he have to not like women? So there's three things that perhaps you could quickly answer. Yeah, so Charles is, in fact, an Assyrian, and we're talking about King Charles III, formerly known as Charles, Prince of Wales. He is an Assyrian. In fact, he descends from practically every ancient lineage of note that you could think of. And that's actually documented in the uh, Antichrist and Cup of Tea, both editions, the 1998 first edition and, of course, the new second edition. Um, being a prince, no, in fact, the word that's translated as prince, though it means someone who is either on a throne or slated to be on a throne, typically it's translated as an heir apparent to a throne. But the word is commonly translated as well as ruler, you know, like a royal ruler. In other words, so, so it's not a requirement that the individual be a prince. I never actually thought Charles would become king, to be honest. I never thought it was necessary. But as you know, I've identified him as the Antichrist since 1987. And people have looked at him, in fact, as potentially the Messiah in Israel since the 1970s, right after his investiture as Prince of Wales. That being said, his heraldic achievement or coat of arms as Prince of Wales, which is the actual imagery of Revelation 13 and Daniel 7, as we looked at before, yeah. remains his. It's not gone now that he's king. It's forever his and uniquely his, and no one else will ever have that imagery under international law still. But as king, he's received three new uh, heraldic achievements or coats of arms. So two are actual coats of arms um, that are somewhat similar to his mother's, you know, when she was alive. And uh, the third one is just his royal cipher, you know, which is Charles Rex or King Charles with the Roman numeral three in it. Uh, so those are in addition, in other words, to his original achievement. The reason I bring that up is the title Charles Prince of Wales or Prince Charles of Wales is absorbed under the crown now that he's king. So it's, it's the best thing you could say about it is that it's dormant rather than it doesn't exist because he retains the heraldic achievement. A lot of people say it's absorbed under the crown and it's just gone, but that's not true. We talk about past Princes of Wales, for example. Charles was the 21st. William is the 22nd. Out of all of those, only a few were ever invested. William has not been invested. It took um, 11 years between Charles being created, quote-unquote, Prince of Wales, and his investiture as Prince of Wales, where he was crowned. William is only created at this point. So I bring all that up simply to say that Revelation 13.18, which tells us in the context of that imagery that's on his heraldic achievement as Prince of Wales, to do the name calculation. That prophecy is already fulfilled 
it's been fulfilled. He's been identified now for decades. It doesn't matter anymore what his name or title calculate to or what his name or title is. It no longer matters. The purpose of the prophecy in the first place was to identify who the Antichrist is. And that's been done. And unfortunately, though, the information has been available now for decades to the whole church. Most haven't heard about it. And many who have heard about it are simply mocking it. They're discounting it. They're being fools, biblically. And when I say fools, I don't use the word lightly. You know, scripture says the fool answers the matter before he hears it, right? Before he sees the evidence, before he hears the matter, before he investigates it, you know, as a noble Berean, this kind of thing. We don't want to be fools as Christians. So there's very extensive evidence, as you know, uh, in the Antichrist and Cup of Tea, much more even in the second edition, things that have happened, you know, in the decades since. So the third question on women, there's one of the problems that we have is interpretation. You get a lot of novices out there who have not studied biblical interpretation, and you don't need anything other than Scripture to study biblical interpretation, but if you're careful in reading God's Word, you learn over time that you have to do so in context, and you have to look at the history when you're dealing with things like prophecy. So there are people who conflate Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11, those two chapters, which speak about, in Daniel 8, a little horn, not identified as having a man's eyes, just a little horn in Daniel 8. And then Daniel 11, which speaks of a king of the north, king of the north versus a king of the south. And those were two of the four dynasties that came out of the breakup of Alexander the Great's empire historically. The two major ones of those four dynasties were the king of the north, the king of the south, or the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemaic dynasty, respectively. One centered in, you know, the region of Assyria slash Iraq, what we call Iraq, Syria, that area today. The other centered in Egypt, you know, both relative geographically to the nation of Israel, where it sits on a map, you know, north versus south. So when we get into Daniel 11, when you get to around verse, I don't know if it's 35 maybe, it says that this king of the north at that time, and there are multiple kings of the north in that passage, it's actually tracing a lineage, you know, a series of kings of the north in that prophecy. When you get to verse 35, I think it is, it talks about him having no regard for women, but regarding the God of, no regard for women, not regarding the God of his fathers, but instead regarding a God of forces or fortresses or munitions. Christians have looked at that and they said, okay, the Antichrist is going to be homosexual. He's not going to desire women. There are three problems with that. The first is that the prophecy isn't about the Antichrist who's going to have a global rule. The prophecy was already fulfilled historically by a prior king of the north. And Daniel verses 11, uh, 30 through uh, 30 through 35 maybe, but certainly 35 through 39, have a dual fulfillment historically. It's going to be yeah. fulfilled again in the tribulation week by a king of the north. Christians look at that and they think it's the same individual who will be over a global government for three and a half years. That is incorrect. It is a king of north geographically relative to Israel, a different actor, in other words, who's just another type as a king of the north of the Antichrist, who is a junior Antichrist, if you will. So that's the first error. They're conflating Daniel 8 and Daniel 11, which are about a about a past king of the north, you know, and in some cases a future one who is not the Antichrist, not the one who will be over a global reign. With Daniel chapter 7, which is a little horn of the eyes of a man, that's about the Antichrist who's going to be ruling for three and a half years, a different little horn, you know, who is the who is the the substance of the shadow, if you will, from Daniel 8, that little horn, which is the king of the north. 
and they conflate Daniel 11 with, for example, Revelation 13. So they're taking a type, historically, an actual king of the north, and they're mixing that individual up and his successors with the Antichrist who's going to be over a global rule. So that's the second error. The third is that even if we were to attribute Daniel 11 to the Antichrist as they're trying to do, the prophecy has nothing to do with homosexuality at all. No, it doesn't. No. So the desire of women is actually a title of the Messiah. Going back to Genesis 3.15, women of ancient times desired to bear that promised seed, you know, who would crush the serpent's head, desired to, you know, he was the desire of women, the Messiah was, to bear that child. And it's a title that you actually find in the Zodiac, the Hebrew Maseroth, before it was corrupted to become the Zodiac and forbidden by God. So we didn't have written scriptures originally. You know, right after Adam and Eve, a symbolic format was developed in the stars, if you will, based on constellations and so forth, for the gospel message. It was a way of, you know, telling it to their children, their children telling it to their children, and this kind of thing before we had written scriptures. That was the Hebrew Maseroth. That's what became the Zodiac and was corrupted later. But on the original Hebrew Maseroth, uh, one of the titles for the promised seed is the desire of women. It's an actual title. So, uh, and when it says he doesn't regard the God of his fathers, but regards instead of God of forces or uh, munitions, that's what he regards. It's basically saying he regards warfare and weapons of war rather than, you know, the God of Israel or quote-unquote any God. You know, he's a warrior type mentality. So that's the reality on the passage. And so we cannot apply Daniel 11 to Charles to say, well, if he's not a homosexual, he can't be the Antichrist. And I'll point one other thing out. Charles is a sodomite. He is a so-called bisexual. He has engaged in homosexual relations and been caught in the act, including by Princess Diana and by others in the palace. This is related in biographical information, and people can go and research this on the internet and find plenty of information on that, in addition to the fact of his association with pedophiles who rape boys, like Jimmy Seville, you yeah. know, for example, maybe the most infamous sexual Satanist in you know, the history of the UK, other than somebody like Jack the Ripper, perhaps. So um, even if it's not a prophecy about Charles, he nonetheless fulfills it in the sense that, you know, because again, the King of the North was a type, fulfills it in the sense that he is a sodomite, you know, besides, you know, being interested in women. Yeah, well, I think you answered that quite extensively. So thank okay. you for that, Tim. Let's get okay. into the tribulation. Now, we know the tribulation is a seven-year period. We know, okay, so I'm going to tell you what I believe. Mm -hmm. I believe that when we get the abomination of desolation, that's when we can start counting because that's a sure event. And that's going to come at the halfway point. So yes. we don't know what will be the actual start date of the tribulation. But when we get the abomination of desolation, we could probably go back and say, okay, it started on this date. Correct. And, and when we, as we get closer, you know, it says no man knows the day or the hour, but when we get into, you know, the very, very last days, I think we're going to know. Well, no, we won't know the day or the hour still. We will know the, the year, the month, and the week at best. Some will know the week. No one will know the actual day or hour. 
and I can explain yeah, it. Uh, no, exactly. I now, think even with a precise countdown, I'm saying to you, even counting the 1260 days when the two witnesses start their testimony, which is more precise, by the way, than the abomination that causes desolation, though they happen more or less at the same time. You know, there's a precise count of days, a precise number of months of 30-day months each that we find in Revelation chapter 11 that coincide with the start of the Great Tribulation. And there are multiple things that happen at the same time. One is that desolating abomination. Another is <coughs> the mortal wound to the Antichrist and his recovery and being possessed by the devil around that time. Right. And the Constitution, you know, the actual commencement, if you will, of that global government, government or governance, you know, in a formal sense, under the ten kings, three of which are plucked up by the roots. All that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation week. But when you want to get very precise, the most precise thing we're given is that 1260-day count, you know, for the two witnesses, the days of their testimony. Here's the problem. Here's, here's where we run into the issue with the day or hour thing. That's about when Christ is coming for the saints, right? No man knows the day or the hour of his coming for us. But... He's going to come back at the end of those 1260 days. The two witnesses will lie dead on the street outside Jerusalem for three days, right? Right after that. And then he'll be here, you know, and he'll say, come up here. And they'll ascend in the cloud. They'll rise from the grave, from the dead, if you will, lying on the street outside Jerusalem. And they'll ascend in their own rapture. You know, the first stage of the raptures I talked about in our prior interview. So even for them, they'll be dead. They won't know the day or the hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before it happens. They, they, they may, you know, the two witnesses may have some inkling, but when their testimony ends, they die. And, you know, after that, they're resurrected or raptured. The rest of us, you know, the, the 144,000 will be gathered to Mount Zion. We don't know how many days after the, the two witnesses die, or for that matter, their resurrection and rapture. And we're resurrected or translated at the exact same time the two witnesses are, but we're raptured later. So we don't know exactly how long it'll be after their rapture the, until the 144,000 are on Mount Zion with the Lord. We don't know, you know when he'll do that gathering, just that it's within a certain period. We can fixate it within a 30-day period. And I'll, I'll come back to that. You know, so it's, there is a period of days in which the bowls of wrath are out, being outpoured. They're in Revelation chapter... 10, you know, that last trumpet sounds for an unspecified period of days, the longest sounding trumpet in Scripture. You know, in Revelation chapter 10, verses 6 to 7, in the days of the voice of the sounding of the seventh angel or messenger, who, by the way, is Christ himself, not a created angel in that passage. It's the Lord himself who will blow that trumpet. But that being said, you know, and coming with the voice of the archangel, with a roar himself and so forth, that being said, even after that, when the bowls of wrath are all finally outpoured, when you get to that sixth bowl being outpoured and Christ says, Behold, I come as a thief, and the world is in global darkness because the kingdom of the beast is in darkness from the fifth bowl of wrath prior to mm -hmm. it. You know, the saints get raptured. The rest of the church, after the two witnesses, after the 144,000 appear on Mount Zion with the Lord, we don't know how many days have expired precisely, right? To the point where the hundred you know, between the 144,000 even appearing on Mount Zion with the Lord versus later, uh, the rest of the church being uh, uh, raptured after uh, the nations are gathering for the battle of Megiddo. So the point is, we'll know uh, within a week or so of the Lord's return, but 
even after the two witnesses stand on their feet, and the whole world will see that when it happens, right? It says the nations will rejoice. You know, when they were when they were dead, they'll be watching them. And then when they stand on their feet, the nations will see it. You know, the resurrection. And their rapture is in the same hour that they are resurrected. We know that from Revelation 11, verses 15 to 19. So, so that being stated, uh, we can't know the exact day or hour of our own rapture, any of us, even if we know the week the Lord is coming back. Okay, so I want to I want to go right from the beginning and walk through the seven years, if I may. All right. And, and listen, this is maybe maybe I'm doing this show just for Jeff. Okay, <laughs> that's very possible. But I've done some calculations and I've done lots of reading. There's a couple things I'm foggy about still, but it, you know I, I know that the first half of the uh, seven years is 1260 days. The second half, as I've studied should be 1290 days because of the way the ca the calendar works every six years you got to add a month essentially okay throw the calendar away <laughs> that calendar is not in scripture throw it away but isn't that what scripture has that it was originally on 30-day months Yes, but that's God's calendar. That's not the rabbinic way of trying to reckon it, in other words. Those are two different things. There's no addition of 30 days, you know, in God's way of reckoning things, ever. That was Israel's way of trying to keep things straight, historically. The, the rabbinic way of trying to keep things straight. Right. So, biblically, prior to Noah's flood, in one passage in Genesis, we read that 150 days were five months five 30-day months. We know from Revelation yes. chapter 11, you know, uh, and 12, I think it's, I forget, I get the, I don't know, I, I forget if it's 12 or 11 off the top of my head, but one of them says 40, I think it's 11, it says 42 months and 1260 days, right, for the period right. of the two witnesses' testimony. And we know also that that's three and a half years from the time, times and a half time in both Daniel and Revelation, right? So that's in Daniel 7. It's also in the book of the Revelation, the Apocalypse. You know, and in the history, you know, back there in the time frame of Babylonia slash Assyria, you know, that time frame in history, that word that's plural times would have been explicitly understood as two years. That's how they said two years. So uh, what that tells us is a couple of things. God's way of counting things is still a 360-day year at least in terms of the apocalypse, right? So the real length of the tribulation week, if we assume, and it is an assumption, that the first half is like the second half, the real length is about 11, you know, excuse me, about uh, six years and uh, 11 months, roughly, on our current solar calendar. But then you get into Daniel chapter 12. Remember where it says there's a 1290th day and then blesses you comes the 1335th day, right? I'm going to ask you about the 1335, yes, in particular. Okay. All right, so here's the, here's the rub. The moment that that last trumpet starts to sound from Revelation uh, 11, um, verses 15 to 19, the moment it begins to sound, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of the Lord. In other words, the millennial kingdom starts. And we know in the same hour as all of that, the Lord raptures the two witnesses, which means he's returned or is returning right at that time. 
okay? That's the official start of the Millennial Kingdom. That's the end of the 1260 days. We haven't got to the, the 30 days reaching the 1290 yet. We haven't got to the other 45 reaching the 1335th yet. Those 75 days beyond the 1260, uh, and arguably not the 1260, but really 1263, you know, and whatever it is, hours, you know, beyond that, that the two witnesses are not yet resurrected. It's really from the point of their resurrection, okay? So in other words, that, that period of their testimony is actually just days, a few days, like three days, and maybe some hours, before the exact midpoint of the tribulation week, okay, that they start their testimony. So it's from the point of their resurrection, which is 1,263 days and some hours, okay, that the millennial kingdom begins, and that's the exact end of the year 6,000, biblically, okay, that will allow us to correct the calendar and know when the actual Jubilee years were, you know, on God's counting of things working backward. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's, there's a trick in that too, and I'll come back to that, um, even at that point. So then there's that 75 days beyond, and those are all in the first year of the millennial kingdom. What's it about? Well, the first 30 days are about cleansing the land, you know, and in those 30 days, you have, um, it's, it's like what happens after the birth of a baby. In those 30 days, you're going to have Armageddon and a bunch of other things that happen. Yeah, so Armageddon, the uh, judgment on Israel survivors, you know, gathered back to the land, then the judgment on the sheep and the goats. You know, first there's the cleansing of Israel in the 30 days where Israel comes to faith. The surviving one-third of Israel, and we know it's a third into the land of Judea, that area which is where most of modern Israel's population is. We know that from Zechariah chapters 12 to 14 in the Old Testament. There's another passage, Ezekiel 5 to 6, which was historically you know, perhaps fulfilled, but reaches forward to this also talking about one-third of Israel surviving, two-thirds in the land, you know, in Judea specifically dying, which is where most of Israel's modern population is. And I'm speaking of Israelites, mm -hmm. so not so-called, you know, Palestinians, this kind of thing. So that being said, the other 45 days takes us to Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. So the separation between um, the, the um, Day of the Shout or the Day of the Great Blast, which is commonly called the Feast of Trumpets, and it's not a feast, it's actually a Day of Trumpets, biblically Yom Teruah. It's not actually a feast scripturally at all. It's never called Hog in scripture. It's called Yom, Day. So it's Yom Teruah. Yom, Yom Teruah, the day of the great blast, okay? Yeah, and that's when you see it celebrated annually, the, the uh, rabbi or celebrant or the pastor will blow a shofar till he has no longer any breath while he waves it back and forth over the assembly, over the congregation. As long as he can keep going, he keeps going. And, and that's the type. But the bottom line is 75 days from Yom Teruah is Hanukkah the Feast of Dedication. That will be the official inauguration, if you will, of the Millennial Kingdom. At that point, all the judgments are finished and every human being alive on the planet is a believer. There are no non-believers left alive on earth anywhere. They're all in hell under the surface of the earth, the unbelievers. Okay, um, so... <laughs> yeah, so in other words, you're going uh, roughly six years and 11 months from the start of the tribulation week, ostensibly to the end of it, assuming that the first half is 1260 days, you know, that God is, that's being reckoned that way. And I'll, I'll mention why I say that's an assumption in a moment, besides the fact that it's not explicitly stated in scripture. 
and then of course you got the 75 days plus the three days and some hours for the two witnesses beyond that to you get the to the official inauguration if you will of Christ's millennial kingdom uh, where it's truly the kingdom of God on earth at that point everywhere so that being said um, when we look at the years one, I've got a complete volume on chronology in my upcoming Messiah history in the tribulation period series if you don't mind I'm gonna present for a moment Oh, no, I would love and, to. And, um, I'm a visual share. person, and but we'll describe it for the audio listeners as well. Okay. Um, does it let me uh, choose the screen here? Let's see. If it's there in Chrome, uh, it does easily. If it's a window, it's a little bit harder. I'm looking for the option to choose the screen. Oh, entire screen. There we go get used to this interface. All right, so now you get the weird effect. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Is that a mirror or are you seeing me? What are you That's seeing yourself? There you go. There you go. I had to leave that there. That's that's so fun. All right. And let me bring up the passage that I want. Now do you see the Bible? We got it. Yeah. Okay. But your so camera what I want to show. Up, My camera? Yeah. Well, it's because I'm sharing my screen. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, I'll be back in a minute. Um, all I wanted to point out was um, this volume, number four, right here. Biblical in my coming, chronology. Yep, Biblical Chronology, The Young Creation, in my Messiah History in the Tribulation Period series that's coming out. So this chronology does a few unique things. Uh, one of the unique things it does, which is not in uh, any other chronology that I've ever heard of or seen, so I don't think it is actually in any other one, is it reckons the years that the scribes counted following Noah's flood, you know, those solar years, where Earth suddenly had a 365 and a quarter day year roughly rather than 360 days, you know, in its orbit around the sun. Earth literally had a 360 day physical year prior to Noah's flood. That changed with the flood because the angular momentum of the planet itself changed on its axis so that Earth, the spin on the axis began to increase. So I'll go back to uh, where you can see me here. Oh. That's that's something I didn't know either. I, Where's my yeah. camera? Um, so, do you see me or no? No, I do not see you. Uh, at the uh, bottom, you oh, can... Uh, okay. There, there you, you go. Are. I don't. I guess it automatically stops the camera when I share my screen. Didn't know that. Or yeah, okay, normally if I share later. my screen, I, I have to have dual monitors that I share the second monitor sort of thing. That's uh, uh, that's how I get away with it. Okay, so well, hold on, because yeah. you you just answered a question that I've never asked anyone, but it's been going through my mind. Mm -hmm. If God's calendar is thirty day months. Then why are we doing all these gym? Why? How come it didn't line up with the sun and stuff like that? Like, did God make a mistake? Like, it's almost what I would think about it because we've had to correct it to go with the the solar periods and stuff like that. And it it's been bothering me the last few days. But you say it's actually changed. Yes, it changed. So, for example, if you stand on your feet and you stretch your arms all the way out and you start spinning at a fixed pace, you draw your arms in, you automatically speed up. Yes. You can't help but do that. It's because you're changing the angular momentum of your body. It's just simple physics, right? 
So with the earth prior to Noah's flood, when the flood transpired and earth was struck from space, you know, by multiple uh, meteors, comets, and asteroids from the planetary body that got blew up between Mars and Jupiter, one or more planetary bodies. And I don't know if you and I have talked about that. We can come back to the real history of our solar system at some point if we haven't. But, but part of the triggering event for the flood was punching holes through Earth's atmosphere so that we got the windows of heaven opened, if you will, like you read in Genesis, mm -hmm. and striking the surface of the planet. You know, it was bombarded. And so the, you know, macroevolutionists who think that was 65 million years ago for when the dinosaurs were wiped out, well, they're, they're wet behind the ears and wrong on that, right? But in fact, Earth was bombarded and it was only thousands of years ago in reality. So Earth had a supercontinental crust or a super shell, one or the other, prior to the flood, and that crust was suspended on pillars, biblically, and under that crust was a lot of water, and above it was a thicker atmosphere than Earth has today that was supersaturated, filled with water. So today, you could go over the equator in various places, and by satellite, you can look down on it, and you can see there are little, literal rivers of water in the upper atmosphere, dense rivers of water in the atmosphere above the equator today, flowing just like a river. You can see that on satellite images. So, so, but prior to the flood, the whole atmosphere was filled with water, you know, above the surface of the Earth, and it wasn't collapsing. It was a it was a supersaturated atmosphere that hadn't been collapsed, and so not only was it thicker, but rainbows, for example, striking the atmosphere at the top would have bent out and been deflected back into space. That light would before ever reaching the surface of the planet, so you'd never see a rainbow on the Earth. You also wouldn't get almost all of the damaging radiation that causes mutations and this kind of thing, including the radiation that changes the ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-14. The ratio would have basically been static, not changing prior to the flood. So everything prior to the flood using that method of dating looks very, very old, when in fact it wasn't old at all. It was, it was very young. Yeah, because they're assuming the same rate of decay over time and they're ignoring the fact of the flood and the changes to the atmosphere and the changes to the amount of radiation reaching the surface of the earth, all that. But with these things, with the, with the continent being fractured by that bombardment and the pillars being crushed beneath it so that water came up from under the continent to flood the surface, and then at the same time that super vapor canopy was collapsed from the, the bombardments that it literally rained for 40 days and 40 nights or over the surface of the entire planet. Okay, with those things happening, you end up having more mass moving toward the core of the earth, literally, and the atmosphere becoming thinner, literally, and the natural result of all that mass moving closer to the core of the earth, you know, and, and the surface flooding and all that, is the earth spun up on its axis. So the days were physically shortened, literally, <coughs> but the orbital period around the sun did not change. Okay, Tim, I, I hate going here, honestly. I hate, but you have to understand the atmosphere out there right now. You've said yeah. two things that are going to rile people up. You said the earth spins on its axis, yep, <laughs> axis and you said it's it also flat. spins on pedestals. <laughs> you no, know no, I didn't say it spins on pedestals. Anti-flat. No, come at me. <laughs> I, I'm saying the continents, the supercontinent or super shell before it was fractured, was suspended on pillars all under it. And you know, we had a geyser system built into the crust of the Earth prior to the flood to water the surface of the Earth. It didn't rain prior to Noah's flood. That's okay? right. There was a lot of water 
under that super shell or supercontinent, okay? Which had to go somewhere when that fractured continent was sinking down because the pillars were shattered. And scripture explicitly states the pillars were broken up. It states that in Genesis. And it actually indicates it elsewhere in scripture too, which is another topic. But at any rate, um, so, so it was continent mm -hmm. standing on the pillars, not the earth. Well, suspended on it. Well, no, the, the, the pillars were on under on other mass beneath them, right? Right. And between that mass and the supercontinent or shell were pillars and water in between and other fluid in between. And by the way, that's still true today. When we have when there's this fear, for example, that this large earthquake in California one day might take, you know, at the San Andreas Fault, et cetera, might mm -hmm. cause a large chunk of California to sink into the ocean or this kind of thing. There are a lot of areas along our own coast today where they know that under the continent, which is not flooded with water, under the United States, there are oceans of water today. It's still suspended, you know, on a certain number of pillars. Okay. It would have to be for there to be the water under it. Yeah. And it isn't just the United States. Okay. So, so the point is some of that structure, that infrastructure that existed before the flood has remained intact. And that's the reason. We have, that's one of the major reasons we have land mass uh, exposed today on the surface of the earth and it's not all underwater. There we go. Okay. So don't write me letters <laughs> to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime I talk about anything with the earth, it's like I get hundreds. It's, it's amazing. Um, all right. Let's go back into the timeline of the tribulation because... Uh, I'll lay out the way I thought it would happen. Uh, okay. You have a different way of presenting it. And to be honest, after I heard some of your talk on it, I thought, oh, wow, I, I might want to reconsider my ways. So I was, you know, the tribulation starts, got 1260 days and that's the right or wrong. I kind of overlapped that first 1260 days with the 1335 days. I'm sorry. I need to, I need to um, interrupt you for a moment, Jeff, because I didn't finish my main thought and going into all okay, of that. Okay. Yeah, please. Um, so prior to the flood, we had 360 day years, literally the entire period prior to the flood. After the flood, it, we've now got this period that no, no longer is perfect for that when the earth is orbiting the sun and they have to figure out, okay, now how are we going to reckon the calendar? Eventually, they figure out ways to do it. And in the modern times, we know it's 365 and a quarter days, roughly, you know, to orbit the sun. But Israel's scribes, you know, which were all post-flood, were counting solar years. And in fact, all the scripture, which is post-flood, you know, that's not talking about prior to the flood, is counting solar years. Whenever they record a period of years in the Old Testament or the New, where God himself is not the one saying it's so many years through a prophet directly, where the scribes are counting and recording it, they're looking at solar years, okay? So, so Daniel would have been looking at solar years, not... Well, they're, well but here's the problem. Uh, when you go back into the kings, the table of kings and so forth, in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you can't make the, re the reigns and the co-regencies of the kings and their sons perfectly mesh. You can't do it. And people, well, I can, but but chronologers have not been able to do it because they've been using solar years, which is what the scribes recorded in the scriptures. 
And so they end up inventing co-regencies for kings and their sons that are not explicitly stated in Scripture. They're presuming, in other words, that they were there. And every chronology I've ever heard of or seen, you know, operates under those presumptions. It's wrong. What I found is if you adjust those counted solar years, make them 360-day equivalents, then everything meshes. No more need to invent co-regencies or that kind of thing for kings or their sons. And so I show that in my biblical chronology. Now, I made an assumption that the 2,000 or so years, you know, from Christ's crucifixion to his return, you know, assuming that he was crucified, for example, around the end of the fourth millennium or at the end of the fourth millennium and, uh, you know, coinciding with, coinciding with death on the fourth day and being under the altar of God on, on the fifth day, like mm-hmm. we see in the book of Revelation, the, fifth, the fourth and fifth seals in Revelation chapter 6. That's an imprecise thing. It's a presumption on my part. It fits the pattern. We know for sure that he was crucified, you know, toward the end of the fourth millennium. If not exactly at the exact end, certainly very close to it. That we can definitely say biblically. But but that being said, I was trying to do this thing. Okay, you know, if I can make the kings all mesh like that, you know, by just converting the years to their 360-day equivalents, all right? And by the way, there is another par- uh, passage in Scripture that's using 30-day, uh, 360-day years following Noah's flood. Uh, and that's in Daniel. I'll come back to that in a minute. But um, if I can make it mesh like that, well, then how many you know, years on our solar calendar would 2,360-day years be? And it's, it's like 1,973 and a quarter years or something like that, if I remember right, you know, our solar years. So I was figuring, okay... You know, reckoning Christ's crucifixion to the uh, to a to a year on in which uh, the Passover Sabbath was a Thursday and the day of preparation a Wednesday. He was crucified on the day of preparation, right? He was crucified on a Wednesday. You know, there are a period of years we know from solar calculations, you know, astronomy, mm-hmm. uh, going back in time that could have ostensibly fit. And eighty thirty was not one of those years. I don't think. But then again, we've got all kinds of inaccuracies in our in our secular calendars, the imprecisions. You know, we're, we're stuck with assumptions until we can go back and retrospect and correct things. So that being said, we're outside my maximum margin of error. You know, for that 1973 and a quarter years, no matter what year I would reconcile the crucifixion to be. So maybe it's 2,000 solar years, you know, except for the tribulation week where God is counting based on 30 day, 30 day months and so forth. So there's, an, there's a bit of an unknown there, but I would say since we're outside my maximum margin of error, we're probably talking solar years until you actually get to the tribulation week where God is telling us about it using 30-day months. And then the second thing, you know, I said in Daniel, there's actually, there are a few passages where God specifies the number of years in the Old Testament and the scribes aren't counting them, you know, prophetic passages. And in those, in my chronology, I converted all of those to their 360-day equivalents. And then everything meshes. But then there's this question following Christ's crucifixion. What are we supposed to be using, right? Now, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, which has the 70 period of 70, 70 times 7 years, 490 years. Right. And we're talking about the tribulation week, which is the final 7 years of that 490 years. There's a period between that 483rd year, the end of it, and the start of the 484th year. You know, a lot of Christians and scholars have dealt with that. That's correct. There is a, a period in between. So 
the 483 years, if we count those as 30-day months, you know, 483, 360-day years, you can actually count from the day of the commandment to rebuild the, the defensive wall of Jerusalem uh, and to rebuild Jerusalem itself to the, to the day that Christ was crucified, it, it goes to the precise day using 360-day years. It's, it's wow. exactly to the day. So, so we know really that... pinpointed the day. Of his crucifixion. Yeah, wow. Right to the day. And, and, so, and of his coming as well. Yeah, you know, and this is one of the things Christ said, woe to you. You know, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, had you known, right? Had you known the time of your visitation? And then he goes on to tell him, because you didn't know, all these terrible things are going to happen, right? You know, like what the Romans did in the first century when they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and so forth. And, you know, more than a million Israelites died from deprivation and warfare. Oh, yeah. Uh, a substantial portion of the Israelite population at that time over, the, over all that. But the point is they should have known because they were nearing the end of that 483 years from that prophecy. They should have known the Messiah was coming and that he was going to be cut off and all of that. They should have known it was the time of their visitation. It was because they weren't believing God's written word and weren't paying attention that they didn't know. And it was apostasy. That's the reason they didn't know. So, and lack of belief. So, all that being said, it makes sense then since the first 483 years you know, were 360 days in length each, the way that God has specified them in that prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, that the final seven would be 360 day years also. So with that, um, <coughs> Sorry. <I'm> type. Uh, <coughs> okay, with that preamble, uh, I think we can say that the first half of the tribulation week, week is uh, also 360 days in length. And, uh, and that's where I wanted to bring it to your questions now on the tribulation week and laying that out. Oh, my apologies. Something's in my throat. No problem. I've oh, done boy. that a few times. Yeah. <coughs> All right. So when does the 1,335 days start? Uh, at the same time the two witnesses begin their testimony. It starts at the same time that their 1,260-day testimony starts. Same day. And, and how did you come well, to that? Well, okay, okay let, me, let me correct myself on that. That's not precisely right. It starts three days and some hours after that because they're going to be three days and some hours. Let me, well, no, I don't. Do I need to correct myself? No, I don't. I had it right the first time. See, you ask me questions, ex, you know, off the cuff. Sometimes my brain gets scrambled. <laughs> but no, it is actually when the two witnesses start their testimony. That is correct. And how did you ascertain that? So um, this, this is pivotal. Well, no, okay. Maybe I'll, I'll have to edit this. Why I let think me, it's pivotal to let me. me. Let, me, let me backtrack and think about this for a moment before I answer you. Maybe, maybe the second thing I said was right. I have to think about how I meshed it all. Um, Hmm. 
Yeah, no, it is right. The first thing I said was right. So it starts with the, with the, um, well, no. Let me think here. Did I start? Yeah, it has to be when their testimony begins. So, because I didn't, I don't fully understand the 1,335 days, admittedly. Although but you can argue, let me just say, you can argue that it's when their testimony, you know, when they rise from the grave, when that last trumpet sounds. Well, it says... the 75 days begin at that point. So, uh, because of the difference in between Yom Teruah, you know, if it's exactly on the time when that trumpet would be blown, and the start of Hanukkah. So the 1335th day is Hanukkah. Yeah. Okay, so I, because I don't understand the holidays as much, or the festivals as much, I, I'm having trouble comprehending that. But because of what it says with the 1335 days, blessed is he that waiteth and come to the 1335 days. So in my mind, well, I stuck or survives that. or survives to the thirteen and three fifth day. Right, right, okay. So <laughs> this is a part of how I got my mid tribulation uh, rapture theory. Okay, so you, you have to understand mm -hmm. this. And, and this is if I'm wrong. Look, I'm prepared for the end, no matter what. You know that that's the way it goes. But <laughs> we can always be hopeful. But the way I've always seen it is we have the beginning of the first 1260 days, the start of the tribulation. We don't know when that is. And I've always kind of put that clock with the 1335 days starting at the same time. And what would happen is when we get to the midpoint, the 1260 days, we have the abomination of desolation. And from there, now we've got this 75-day hangover. Okay? This is just this is my, my way of looking at it. In Matthew 24, it says there will be the abomination of desolation. The sun will, you know, go dark. The moon will go blood red. And here comes the Son of Man. But I didn't think that was his second coming. I thought that was us being brought up to be with him because I, and there's, there's scriptures that say we will not go under the wrath of God. And so after that, so when the abomination of desolation, uh, the money system comes in, you can't buy or sell. There's the mark of the beast. If those days were not cut short. So that's kind of where I fit in those extra 75 days because I'm thinking, okay, we got the mark of the beast. We could only survive for so long, right? Uh, we're being persecuted. We're being killed. We can't buy or sell for this period of time. So then I thought we we're taken up at that time. I know you look at it a different way, and that's what I want to get to. So we avoid the wrath of God for the next 1260 days, and then we come back. Now, during that time, there's the two witnesses. And the 144,000, who I also have a different theory on than what you've spoken of, um, they are sent down in that time. 
but we are not here experiencing the wrath of God. We come back with him in the clouds at the end of the seven years. Okay. That's yeah. basically my whole theor theoretical part of the seven, year the seven years. Okay. Um, yeah, that's not right. So <laughs> for, for a lot of reasons. Um, let's look at the passage in uh, Daniel chapter 12. For sure. And Daniel chapter yeah 12. Uh, let me bring it up here and I'll see if I can present without killing my... Kingdom. You know what? We can just read it because people really can't see it on screen anyways. Unless they're watching uh, the TV. Yeah, but people watch it later on Rumble or wherever, so I'll just share it. Um, I want to present my screen. Here we go. There we go. All right. I think it's important to parse this a little bit. All right. So let's start with this. From the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up. Okay, so it starts with the desolating abomination being set up right here. Mm -hmm. There shall be 1,290 days. Okay. So that, now, that here it, proved my whole theory wrong right there. Yeah, but it, but it's it's not talking <laughs> about it's not talking about twelve sixty plus thirty right here yet, you know, not in this context. So we'll come back to that. But there'll be one thousand two hundred ninety days from the time the abomination is set up, and then it says, "Blessed and holy is he who comes to one thousand three hundred and thirty five days." Well, you know, if you wanted to argue it the way that you were, then there's going to be all kinds of non Christians, including Satanists, and you know. People worshiping the Antichrist already at that point who are on the earth when you get to that 1335th day, they're not blessed or holy, and they're still going to be on the earth after that 1335th day, the way that you're reckoning it. And so when we go back in context here to the prior chapter, um, and actually we probably need to go back to Daniel chapter 9, which is really... Where we need to yeah, that's kind to. of the meat of it. Um, there are certain things that happen at the end of the 490 years that it talks about here when it says the 70 weeks are determined for your people, right? At the, at the very end of that 490th year, we get uh, finishing of the transgression, making an end of sins, Reconciliation for iniquity, bringing in everlasting righteousness, sealing up vision and prophecy, meaning it's fulfilled at that point, and then anointing the most holy, or and that could even be the most holy place. Um, and actually, they state that right here, you know, which is basically about cleansing the temple. So when I talked about um, you know that thirty days being a period of cleansing, right, mm -hmm. following the twelve sixty, there there's this basis for it because it starts after the twelve sixty, but also in the law of Moses, when a child was born, there'd be a 30-day period for the cleansing of the mother, right? You know, who had just shed a bunch of blood, shed the placenta, right. et cetera, right? Okay. In the land of Israel, physically, a birth will be manifest 
at Christ's return when his feet touches the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will split you know, to the east and to the west. A, a, a bunch of water will flow forth from between that split, right? Like a womb opening, in fact. And then Armageddon happens after that, right? Where a bunch of blood is shed in the land up to the horse's bridles, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the flesh of the slain cast out for the birds of the birds of prey, birds of midheaven to consume. That's what they did historically with the placenta. You know, from birth, they'd toss it on the ground. The birds of prey, other animals would consume it. So it's a physical birth manifest in the land of Israel, which is the navel of the earth, biblically. You know, where Mount Zion sits uh, is, and the Mount of Olives, biblically, that is the navel of the earth or the belly button of the earth, if you will. Yeah, and where the womb is and all that. Uh, typologically. So the point is, God's going to implement a cleansing of the land you know, and of Israel for 30 days following the 1260. And, and in that period, these things happen, which is right at the beginning of the 1260. And then, of course, the most holy place is anointed. And then uh, following that, you get eventually to that 1335th day, 45 days later. But <clears throat> when we get to this, you know, at the end of that 1200, at the end of the uh, tribulation week, uh, there's a consummation which is determined, right? And it's poured out in the desolate when we talk about the bowls of wrath, for example. As I pointed out in our prior interview, the bowls of wrath are post-tribulational. They are the judgments that follow from the start of the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and they are outpoured in the days in which that trumpet is sounding. Okay? But aren't, aren't the bowls, like, isn't it Trumpet bull, trumpet bull, trumpet bull. No, no, it's it's not. Do you remember what I pointed out in our prior interview on that? I guess I don't because I've I've just whenever I okay. read it, it seems to be it's a the trumpet bull. Like they're it's like they're happening at the same time. Yeah, they aren't. So this right here is one of the trumpets, right? The sixth trumpet, Revelation right. chapter nine. Remember, I pointed out to you that the trumpets are explicitly called plagues, the trumpet judgments. In Revelation chapter 9. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay, so you agreed with me. The trumpets are explicitly called plagues. And we also agreed that the trumpets begin to sound after the seventh seal is opened, right? So seven seals opened, and after that, the seven angels prepare themselves to sound. Yep. And then they sound in sequence. So the seven seals, it's roughly a seal per year. The seven seals open, so we're perhaps in the last year or so of the tribulation week, the seven trumpets begin to be out, uh, begin to sound in sequence, and they're explicitly called plagues, yeah, per Revelation chapter 9, right? Yep, I see okay. that. Yeah, and here it's italicized, meaning they've inserted it. It's not actually in the Greek, but here it's actually in the Greek, these plagues right here. In verse in, 20. In 920, yes. You'll find it in the in the Greek text of, you know, like in an interlinear of Revelation nine, uh, verse twenty. Now here's the thing about the bull's wrath. The very first verse, Revelation fifteen, verse one. They are called the seven last plagues. They are the final plagues. So if the trumpets are plagues, but the bulls of wrath are the last plagues necessarily they begin to be outpoured after the seventh trumpet starts to sound. Yeah, for, for I don't know why. I've always pictured that as just a trumpet bull, trumpet bull. 
you know. But you're seeing you're seeing what I'm pointing out here, right? I am seeing it. Yeah. Okay. So they are the final plagues, and if the trumpets are also plagues, then the bowls of wrath have to follow the the seventh trumpet sounding. It start follow the the beginning of its sounding. Is that making sense to you? It is. It is. It's okay. just that uh, it, it's I've I've considered this for the last couple of years the other way, so I'm having a hard time. Yeah. So the real sequence is the seven trumpets are under the seventh seal, the seven bowls of wrath are under the seventh trumpet. They're telescoping. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. And they're successively shorter in period. Also, you know, it's roughly a seal per year. You know, each trumpet uh, breaks up the course of a year, right? So seven trumpets over the course of a single year, roughly, out of that seventh seal. And then the seven bowls of wrath outpoured in just a period of days, an unspecified period of days in which that seventh trumpet is sounding. All right. So, so that's the correct sequence on the trumpet's seals and bowls. And so, as I pointed out previously, the moment that seventh trumpet starts to sound, Christians will receive their eternal bodies, whether that means they're resurrected, you know, the tribulation saints have been martyred or died during the tribulation week, resurrected, you know, the moment that seventh trumpet starts to sound, or if we've survived, we'll be translated into God's kingdom, into our eternal bodies. In other words, the, the mortal body that we have, in which we've survived, will instantly be translated, transformed into an eternal body. You know, and to remain eternal forever. It'll be changed while we're standing on our feet or sitting down or whatever. And just for in clarity, you're eye. saying this happens basically at the end of the seven-year period. Yes. So the bowls of wrath, we're immune to those because our eternal bodies can't be touched by God's wrath. They're supernaturally protected. They're eternal. They can't be killed. You know, we'll see the bowls of wrath that poured on those who are around us. You know, while we're on our feet, for example, in our eternal bodies, but it won't touch us. Supernatural protection. Now, where do you get the idea of us being translated into our eternal bodies rather than brought up into the clouds, which is the traditional thought? I might have to go to King James. Let's see here. Yeah, it's a translation issue. Um, let's see if they translate it transform here. Nope. Let's go to authorize King James. Let's type in here author. Or maybe they just have it as KGV. I always forget on this. There we go. And let's search. There you go. Translated this into the kingdom of his son. So Colossians 1 to 3, or 1 uh, verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of of his son. Yes, yep. that's yeah. 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 Yes, his dear son. Yeah, and if we go to First Thessalonians four, for example, 
And let's just go back to New King James. That's just what I needed to show you there. Um, in fact, now let's let's see how they translate Colossians 1.13 in the New King James, which is part of the reason people get confused. You know, not every translation gets everything right. No. So here no. it's, yeah, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son. And of they're, his love. they're yeah. suggesting it means transferred here. But if we go to 1 Thessalonians 4, yeah, we have changed. And maybe I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 15, actually. All right. So there's a point where there are some who are alive, right? Um, so we shall not all sleep, meaning not all the saints will die, right, before the Lord returns. Okay, but we, we shall not be all changed. Sleep, but we, we shall all be changed. So if you aren't being resurrected, you're being changed when that last trumpet starts to sound. And that change is a translation. It's basically like God taking everything that makes you, you, your whole genome, in other words, and literally moving your soul and your spirit, you know, without the sin nature into a body that's instantly been reworked, like in an instant reworked to be young and perfect and not fallen, et cetera, based on the genome that you originally had, but not fallen. Right, so, so we, all can the corrupt parts eat, and... we can still drink, but we can't be killed. Yeah, and you know, it says we'll be like he is, right, Christ? Following his resurrection, he ate and drank with his disciples, mm -hmm. and he had flesh and bone and could be handled after his resurrection. You know, and Thomas thrust his hand into his side, right? He told Thomas to put his finger in the, the scar in his hand, the nail hole, right? And to put his hand into his side. You remember that? I do. You know, he retained those wounds, physically manifesting them in his body for that purpose, but Thomas could feel that stuff. It wasn't just spiritual. You know, and the other disciples saw it happen. Nobody said, we didn't see that. And, uh, and then he ate fish with them, right? Afterwards, mm -hmm. on the beach. So, so, so one will- translated rather than just, uh, you know, going up into the clouds, like was the traditional thought of the rapture. Well, a genome is a language. It's actually, I love the, the word translated because it's almost technical in a sense, what scripture is describing here. You know, when you think about what we know about science and reality today and what it would take for God to replace any one of our bodies and to give us a body that's young and looks like us still, right, but doesn't have the sinful nature, can still eat, can still drink, you know, can be handled, right, but is eternal and won't ever die. Our bodies are built using a program encoded at the genetic level, you know, in genes, you know, at the right. molecular level, uh, in an incredibly sophisticated way. You know, it's, it's sophisticated beyond any science you know, science is only beginning to be able to comprehend a little bit of it and apprehend a little bit of it because it isn't just the genome, it's epigenetics too. And in other words, there are things that interact with our genes that are heritable, passed from generation to generation. You know, not like, almost like a memory, but not quite a memory. And so God is looking at the totality of that 
in each of us at the moment we're changed. And he's, he's translating that into a new body that looks like us and transferring, transferring our soul and spirit into that new body. But at the same time that all that's happening, the body we're in is literally being consumed from the inside. It's literally being changed in an instant from the inside out, you know, just boom. And so he's taking our body and he's translating it into his kingdom, but removing all the bad stuff, including the fallen nature, and making it young and perfect and eternal at the same time. That's what he's doing for those who have survived to the point that that last trumpet starts to sound. For those who've died, he's just, you know, creating that body from the dust, you know, from <coughs> their bones and so forth, whatever remains of, of them, but just creating it from the dust where their grave is. Does that make sense? It does, but I guess, okay, so let, let's just clarify for the audience, uh, because I've heard you say these things a couple times, so it's, it's coming into form of picture. But there's one rapture, but multiple stages. So why don't we talk about where those stages are in the seven years and how they happen and for who so they happen? There's one resurrection or translation that happens at the same time for all the tribulation saints. At the same time that the two witnesses are resurrected, for example, uh, those of us who have died or survived in the tribulation week will be resurrected or translated, you know, instantly at the exact same time for everyone, okay? But now we're on the earth in our eternal bodies. We haven't been caught up to meet the Lord in the air yet. So the first individuals to be taken are the two witnesses, the ones who will be at the Lord's left and at his right in his kingdom, like his, you could say right-hand men, but really left and right, okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, James and John, wanted to be at the Lord's left and right in his kingdom. Yeah. And he said, you don't know what you're asking. That's for those to whom my father has given it or gives it, right? And what did he do to James and John or for them when that request was made and he seemed to deny it? Do you remember what he did right after that besides telling him that's not for me to give, that's my father, you know, he gives I, that? I don't remember. I do remember, you know, the sons of thunder. <laughs> well, that was exactly where I was going. Okay. Why did he call them the sons of thunder? Why do you suppose he called them that? Mm, okay, I, I, I'm not going to guess because I'm not sure. Okay, well, the two witnesses are the ones who will be to the Lord's left and his right in his kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. One of the major things they will be able to do is call down thunder upon the nations. Right. They're the actual sons of thunder. He said, well, you can't be them, but I'll... I'll honor you with this. I'll call you the <laughs> sons of name. thunder. Okay? He said, you've got the nature, but this is for them, in other words, when the time comes. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Kind of like Elijah being, you know, like uh, John the baptizer being Elijah, if you could receive it, but he wasn't the literal Elijah from history. Right. One of the two witnesses will be the literal Elijah from history. Okay? Yes. Per Malachi 4. So, so that's where I'm going with that. And um, the rapture, you know, therefore honors the two witnesses before anyone else in the church. Because they'll be the two who are to the Lord's left and his right. And he comes directly for them, you know, and says, come up here. You know, a voice in the clouds. Yes. 
and he comes to Jerusalem. He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives after that. It's going to split. And all Israel, you know, the surviving third, is going to come to faith at that time. Yeah, and become newly born again Christians, every one of them. The yeah, it does be all of them. Yeah. So there'll be a few rebels that the Lord kills later, right before he judges the sheep and the goats. That's uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 27, you know, where the Lord says, Bring here those enemies of mine who would not have me to worship over, to, uh, to reign over them, and slay them in my presence. He'll send angels to gather them too. You remember where the parables where he says he's going to gather the vine mm-hmm. together and, and cast it into the fires? Right? You know, gather everything that offends out of his kingdom and cast it into the fire, into the, into the lake of fire. Right? Cast them down to hell. So there'll be a few rebels in Israel, even after this, who will be among those who are gathered and executed in his presence. But ultimately, all of Israel that survives will be saved. You know, a third of Israel. So, that being said, um, the next group to be raptured, and the rapture in this case is implicit, is the 144,000 because they'll appear on Mount Zion with Yeshua to sing the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, and, the, and a new song which only they can learn. And they're sealed prior to that. So, they're sealed in Revelation chapter 7. Mm-hmm. And then later, they appear on Mount Zion in Revelation chapter 14 with the Lord, doing those things with a sea of glass around them, right? Yeah, and harpists playing harps and so forth, you know, audibly around them, this kind of thing. And that gets into imagery attributed to God's throne earlier in the apocalypse, earlier in Revelation. So the Lord is present with his throne here, and the 144,000 are there also, and it's at Mount Zion where this is transpiring. And Israel is going to see this and repent en masse as this is occurring. The rest of Israel, okay? Now, the mission of the 144,000 is not to the nations. This is a common false teaching by both pre- and mid-tribulationists. You know, how does the world hear the gospel and an, yeah, how does the world hear the gospel and an innumerable multitude come to faith in the Great Tribulation, for example, or the whole Tribulation week? in terms of the pre-tribulationist claim, if the church is gone from the earth, right? Exactly. Okay. So they'll, they'll say, well, fact, the 144,000... The kingdom goes into darkness. Yeah. So they'll say, well, the 144,000 are going to be here. Hmm, how can I use them to meet that criteria? Right? It's pure, tri- it's pure scripture twisting and ignoring what scripture says about the 144,000. So let's look at what scripture actually says about them, a little bit of it. Uh, I'll share my screen for a moment again, and let's have a look. Uh, Okay. So, Revelation. um, 21, I think, is where it is. Is 20 or 21? Uh, I'll be able to Okay. Well, it's in 7 and then 14. Yeah, I'm not looking for the 144,000 here just yet. So I want to look at the New Jerusalem. Yeah, the New Jerusalem is called the Lord's Bride, right? Do you recall that? Not really. but Right here. 
I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Okay, yeah. I never so really New Jerusalem, together, but... Yep, the New Jerusalem is tip, typified as a bride here. Prepared like a bride for her husband. You know, it's got all these jewels like streets of gold and... Yes. You know, walls made of jewels and so forth, right? 1,500 miles square. Yeah, prepared as a bride. You know, adorned like a bride, if you want to think of it that way. Okay. Now, Israel and the church, believing Israel and the church are the Lord's bride, right? We're to be his wife. Yeah, There's going to be th a thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? But Jerusalem is typifying that bride, New Jerusalem is, that comes down out of heaven. So notice this thing about the wall that encircles the New Jerusalem. It says, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of 12 apostles of the Lamb. Right? A foundation per apostle. Right? And then they're going to measure the city and its wall. And when they measure the wall, it's 144 cubits in height. 12 times 12 cubits. The wall is. Right? Mm-hmm. Why 144? I, I see the correlation. But well, the I, correlation I gets more explicit. Together. The correlation is actually more explicit in the Old Testament. So we've just learned that the wall that will encircle the New Jerusalem, which is prepared as a bride, you know, adorned like a bride, and coming down out of heaven, that the New Jerusalem adorned like a bride is encircled by a wall of 12 foundations, of 12 cubits in height each, 144 cubits high, is the implication, right? Mm -hmm. Same number as 144,000, so is there a more explicit connection? In fact, there is. Whoop, if I can type right. Uh, right there. I, okay, so you're going to Isaiah 62, verse 6. six. Yep. Yeah. I have set watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent. What is it that Messianic Jews, so-called, you know, believing Israelites, would tell you today their calling is in the Lord? Will they tell you that their call is to go evangelize the nations? Or will they tell you that they feel called to witness to Israel and to win Israel to the Lord. I would say they're called to, uh, they'd say they're called to witness to Israel. That's correct. All of them, pretty much. And, and this, in fact, is the case. The 144,000 sealed Israelites are going to come from the believing Israelite church today. They're already alive. They're just not sealed yet. We're alive. We're not sealed yet. And... Their mission is not to preach the gospel to the nations per se, though that happens, you know, anecdotally and, you know, and on the side, it just happens in the course of preaching the gospel, period, right? But their mission specifically is to act as these watchmen upon the walls of Jerusalem and to not cease crying out day or night and to give him no rest until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth.
That is precisely what Hebrew Christianity is all about. And so when we get to the fact that the New Jerusalem has a wall, you know, of 144 cubits in height. Whoop. Can I type right? Um, the reason for that is they typify the 144,000 sealed Israelites who are supposed to be the watchmen upon the walls of Jerusalem. So why did I go into all of that? It's because their mission isn't to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in the Great Tribulation. It never was. The Gentiles are supposed to make Israel jealous and to win Israel to the Lord, right? today in the church age? Yes. And they're doing that. And now those of us who are being one to the Lord are supposed to do the same thing, but for Israel. And so, yeah, so it's coming full circle. And, you know, it started with Israel going to the nations, then it's the nations going to Israel, and then it's Israel going back to Israel, believing Israel to unbelieving Israel. And so the mission of the 144,000, you know, after all that long explanation, is, in fact, to preach the gospel to Israel. And they're going to do it by, <laughs> they're going to be singing to, <laughs> and by the way, it does, I don't think the Antichrist can put on the show like what Jesus is going to put on. No, well, I don't know. Birmingham, England was pretty impressive. I mean, you can do a lot through television, right? And through media, yeah. but no, not in reality. And... Although, you know, he could bring down his anti-gravity craft and do things like that. You know, Satan and the fallen angels and the fake aliens and all that. But, you know, the fake aliens, the counterfeit aliens who are corporeal like you and I and can be killed are under Satan and his minions and under the demons. So, and by the way, where, where do you think they come in? Right before the abomination of desolation? I don't know precisely when they come in. You know, they're already coming in behind the scenes. When they come in well, I think we're being prepared for it. The world is being prepared for it. Listen, we, we all think, and it's not in the Bible that, uh, that this is going to happen, but it seems fairly obvious to those who are watching that there's going to be, you know, the alien card is going to be one of the great deceptions of our time. It already is. Um, you know, we could do a whole program just on that, but I'll try to give a little synopsis. So, they're humanoid aliens, so-called. And when I say alien folks, I, I'm not saying they're real aliens, but I'm saying they exist. And I'll come back around to that explanation, okay? So they didn't originate off Earth originally. And they aren't older than mankind is. And mankind is only thousands of years old, just under six millennia old, you know, since God created Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. The, the fake aliens came after us, not before us. So there are humanoid counterfeit aliens who are coming in actual anti-gravity craft. You know, disks, spheres, triangles in some cases, uh, tubes, you know, like submarines, but not submarines, in the, in the case of their own craft. You know, motherships, if you will. And uh, so those are real craft with real humanoids in them. Uh, in many cases, they actually exist. Um, then there are creatures like dinosaurs and insects, but they're chimeric hybrids, the dangerous ones. Uh, you know, when God created life on earth, you know, thousands of years ago originally, there weren't dangerous creatures out there that would be eating mankind. They weren't. They weren't here. There were dinosaurs, you know, like huge creatures 
but not the dangerous ones such as T-Rex or Tyrannosaurus Rex or uh, no, I, they, Velociraptor they or these kinds of things, you know, that or Carnosaur or whatever you want to call them. These creatures uh, didn't exist. But what happened is the Nephilim, who were human-angel hybrids, the first humanoids, you know, if you ignore angels who were created directly by God originally, these human-angel hybrids, you know, produced by a small group of fallen angels taking, ostensibly abducting, you know, and raping human women to produce mm -hmm. unnatural chimeras, you know, producing the Nephilim, who were fallen liars, but corporeal like you and I, but also supernatural to some extent like the fallen angels themselves. These Nephilim were, were busy remaking life in their own image. Now, Scripture doesn't say this, but we have hard evidence to back this. I yeah. have hard evidence to back this, and I shared in my upcoming Solar Apocalypse series. But they were busy remaking, you know, and it's, it's not contradictory to Scripture. It's implied, and I'll tell you how it's implied in a moment in terms of the dangerous dinosaurs and the like. You know, the world became filled with violence, and so God regretted what he had made, right? And thus brought Noah's flood to the earth. You know, to wipe everything out except what he brought aboard the ark, that he had a handful of human beings prepare, right, to survive the flood. So, um, let me stop this and I'll, I'll talk for a moment so you can see me. Um, all right. So the world became filled with violence. You know, the typical Christian will look at that and think, well, it was fallen mankind that was responsible for that violence. And of course, that's true. But it was more than that. It was the Nephilim and it was these dangerous creatures that they were seeding, not just to Earth, but literally across our solar system. And our solar system at that time was habitable. Mars was habitable. Humans today could have gone to Mars back then and survived. You know, maybe be bo being born there and then our lungs would have adapted to breathe, you know, the thinner atmosphere and so forth. But it was a lot thicker at that time, had a lot more oxygen prior to Noah's flood. How are you? And it wasn't decimated yeah. like now. It had a liquid water ocean, maybe multiple liquid water oceans on Mars before Noah's flood on Earth. Our moon had an ocean and an atmosphere that was far more, ox it was oxygenated. It had an oxygenated, oxygenated atmosphere with a liquid water ocean across the surface of, of much, if not the whole moon. And it was habitable. Venus ostensibly was habitable, though we can't prove that, you know, because we can't get down to the surface with much today. Um, though there is reason to be, to believe that there could be some fossils that have been, you know, photographed on Venus's surface during a brief period in which um, a probe survived, very brief period. So, um, that being said, uh, with Noah's flood, you know, all those bodies were bombarded, you know, like Earth was in succession after uh, one or more planetary bodies that also had been densely populated like Earth between Mars and Jupiter were blown up, destroyed by God himself. You know, and that bombardment of our solar system destroyed what the Nephilim were doing all over it, including on Earth. Earth was the least damaged of these densely populated bodies. But the life all started here. And what was seeded to our solar system came from here as hybrids produced by the Nephilim from, from the genomes of creatures God originally made here. So we know, for example, the T-Rex, T -Rex, Velociraptor, etc., they were hybrids of birds and reptiles. Having, having uh, biological um, attributes in common with birds and reptiles, both, including feathers. 
you know, a lot of people don't realize that. So, um, you know, covered in a, like a feathery down, probably like chicks, if you will. Mm. And, you know, not flying per se in the case of those particular creatures. But bottom line is they were corrupting life on Earth and remaking it in their own image as unnatural hybrids, trying to make it bigger, badder, faster. And folks, you've probably, many of you never heard this before, but I offer proof. You can go to my YouTube channel and let me show it. Let me just quickly segue, Jeff, for a moment and show yeah, people where they can see some proof on this now, even before my Solar Apocalypse series itself uh, is published. Okay. So my YouTube channel is youtube.com slash author Tim Cohen, a single word, A-U-T-H-O-R-T-I-M-C-O-H-E-N, right here. And I have three videos that I've uploaded. Uh, this one is the most recent and the most important to watch in terms of what we're talking about right now. And, it, and for those of you who are listening, uh, if you go to YouTube, it's non-terrestrial life and it says proof. Oh, me. Sorry, I was trying to keep the title. Whoops. <laughs> okay, yeah. Non-terrestrial life proof pre-flood quote-unquote aliens seeded to Mars, the moon, and other planets. Okay? So in this presentation, which is an interview, it's five hours long with a non-Christian. Okay? And in it, I show some examples of flash fossilization on Earth, meaning fossilized a fossilized dinosaur, a notosaur, that is not bones, where the exterior appearance is preserved. And then I show examples of exterior preserved uh, reptiles, insects, and a pterosaur, actually a head of a pterosaur on Mars in this presentation, and an iguana <laughs> also, a flash fossilized iguana completely exposed standing on its feet on the surface of Mars. I also show a, the head of a Titan, a 30-foot head of a reptile sticking out of the side of a comet in this. And I also show a creature emerging with an exposed paw and shoulder and leg and head from the surface of the moon photographed by Apollo era astronauts on the lunar surface. So how, how were these fallen angels able to transport these things to the other planets? Anti-gravity craft, the same way they come here now. And we also <coughs> have that technology. You know, there are, there are actual secret space programs um, in the United States and some other countries where human beings now have the technology and it's reverse engineered. It's not as advanced, not so advanced as what these humanoids have in most cases, but they've given us some of those craft and we've reverse engineered them. And we've also had crash retrievals, some of which were intentionally crashed specifically for that purpose. Yeah, because they don't want to make it too easy for us, but at the same time, it's a lot of subterfuge, and the so purpose. My guest on uh, on Thursday just passed was actually working on the anti gravity in the suit in the secret projects, and that and he found out he was basically building them for uh, these fallen angels. May I ask the name of your guest? Stan Dale. Stan Dale. Okay, I haven't talked to him for a long time. I don't think I knew that he was directly involved in that. Yeah, yeah. And you're saying he just passed? No, he was he was on here on Thursday. He was okay, on the so program. He's, he, 
He's not deceased. All right. No, no, he's not deceased. Doing quite well. Okay, then I need to interview him and talk to him again, but do not tell him about this program, Jeff. I will not. Uh, And ask him not to watch this one at all right now, if you talk to him. Yeah, I, I, won't I, I, be, want, I won't be communicating with him for at least a few weeks. Okay. I want to see if I can interview him. So maybe you can provide me his current contact information, if you don't mind. I certainly I will. I spoke with him years ago. There. Yeah. Um, so let me just point out in my playlist here on my channel, besides these interviews, or, or not, well, yes, yeah, some of them are interviews. This is an interview, a half hour, one after 10 hours of private interviews I did with someone who claimed to have actually walked Mars surface today, you know, in, in recent years. And he's now deceased. He died after I did this interview with him. Uh, But he had told me in 10 hours of interviews preceding this about things that he encountered on Mars as part of his secret space program. And there were some things he told me that I factually knew were on Mars that he didn't know had been photographed. But I had the photos, and so I shared them in this half-hour interview with him and captured his reactions live to what I shared. No, yeah. you mentioned, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I'll let you continue, but you mentioned anti-gravity craft. What about portals yeah. as well, well, dimensions? He talked about this, about stargates. They call them stargates. That's one of the common terms that they actually use for them. They call them jump gates and different things. But um, whether those things are real or not, I can't prove it one way or the other. I don't know. But, but they have some compelling testimony around that. I'll just say that much. And it's been in science fiction since before any of those people were talking about it. So, in other words, they could have taken something from science fiction and called it real. Yeah, and I go into that in my Solar Apocalypse series. So I'll come back to that in a moment. But what I want to point out is this playlist. I have a playlist dealing with UFOs, humanoids, that kind of thing, apart from what I'm sharing on my channel. And in this playlist, um, I give some examples of actual craft like our own. So this right here is an early one. This is a Nazi UFO. Yeah. People can watch this on YouTube. It's an actual test flight prior to World War II from 1939 Mm -hmm. in Germany of a disc that the Germans had constructed. This is one of ours, maybe given to us and modified, I'm not sure, or reverse engineered, but it's quite sleek in appearance. And in this, it not only shows people working around it, it shows it uh, actually hovering And one of the reasons I think this is a real clip rather than faked is that in the flight portion right here, I'll mute this in case you're hearing the audio. One of the things that you'll notice, and this has been out there for several years, this clip, is the flaps closing around it. And then when the uh, wheels come down later, you'll see them reopening the flaps. The distortion is because of the anti-gravity effect mm-hmm. around it. But you'll see the uh, the flaps come down before the wheels descend. Yes. Again. Stan actually explained how the technology works. And I didn't even mention it, but uh, in it was in 2017, the U.S. Navy made public a their, their patents on some anti-gravity craft. I don't know if you knew that. I do know about that, including a nuclear fusion reactor. Yeah. Yeah. And they were laughed, they were basically laughed out of the room, so to speak, metaphorically by the U.S. PTO, Patent and Trade Office. But then an admiral got involved who um, you know, has high, high uh, clearances to tell the U.S. PTO that these were on the level. 
and consequently patents were granted. It's not, uh, they're very easy, you know, mechanically. Yeah, well, the reactors are quite complicated. I, I don't know that we have the ability to reverse engineer the sorts of reactors that are in the, the ones that the uh, so-called aliens are using, which are um, supposedly uh, antimatter-based. Uh, but we can easily power these with batteries. The Nazis did it. And you can certainly do it with a fusion reactor, or for that matter, a fission reactor. And so, although there's, there's an effect that, an added effect that comes from the... Uh, the antimatter reactor, doing it that way with a particular element that's used. And Bob Lazar talked about it, element 115, uh, which they found out, at, you know, after the fact, it's a real element. Discovered that after he was talking publicly about it several years afterward. So, because that was not in our periodic table prior to Bob Lazar talking about it. And um, at any rate, you know, there are some other clips here. Here's a clip of them working on craft uh, in a, in a hangar-like facility. A real clip. So there are some things like that that I'm sharing on the YouTube channel. You know, just linking to them. Other people have posted them. It's not all fake. These are real right here, uh, I believe. And this is uh, very similar to the model that Bob Lazar described right here. Mm -hmm. But what he called the sport model. At any rate, yeah. And then we have this history from 1942, the UFO, the Battle of Los Angeles, which I don't know if I told you, but that's recreated. Um, uh, actually recreated uh, over that Molech bull idol in Birmingham, England last year. Oh, I didn't know Charles that. is the Antichrist overlooking it. Yeah, I'll show you um, since I'm sharing my screen here. Give you an example. So these are just a few of the images I've captured from the footage, and I've got more that I want to capture. But, uh, and I don't know if you've watched the whole thing. I can send you a link to it if you haven't seen it. I, I did watch it, yeah. Okay. Do you remember this? This pulsating over the bowl right here? Yeah. With these floodlights? Well, there was more to it than was obvious. So, for example, if I open this image up here, you see the pattern of the lights over the top of the bowl? And when I narrated on this and talked about it, they had basically moved the all-seeing eye from over the mock tower of Babel to be over the bull right here. And that's when this pulsating occurred in the film footage of the event. So they were emulating, if you will, Lucifer as that all-seeing eye suddenly moving from over the top of the tower of Babel to being over this Moloch idol, over this bull, right? And then pulsating lights, and right here is where the zenith is, the, the focus of all those floodlights, right? Okay, so looking at that pattern. Just for, for those of you who are listening audio only, we're showing a picture from the Commonwealth Games where Charles was proceeding. He opened it. He was there, and they had that bowl. We've talked about this uh, before uh, that was there, and there's a whole bunch of imagery that goes with it. But there's the one spot where it's all these lights cascading above the bowl yes and you know so just to go you can see right here right so this is the tower of babel over here and they called it the tower of babel explicitly in this event more than once mm -hmm. uh the the newscasters and so forth did and you would hear that you know watching the full clip if i share share that with you but 
So they had the all-seeing eye brightly lit over the Tower of Babel, and they, as it turned off here, it appeared right here. You know, and they, they emulated that basically with these floodlights, right? And uh, spotlights, okay? Well, what they were doing right there was actually making Lucifer look like an, uh, an alien. So if I open this clip here up, the Battle of Los Angeles, this is real footage from 1942. So they filmed this UFO that came in off the coast of California, tracked on radar, stopped over Los Angeles, where there were a bunch of military personnel hovering above them. And they tried to down this thing. They, they put a bunch of spotlights on it. It was filmed and it was photographed both by the press. Okay. So in the midst of these lights was this UFO. If you do a photographic negative effect on this, you'll see the outline of the disc right here in the center of these floodlights. Mm -hmm. This is February uh, 1942. They call it the Battle of Los Angeles. This is a Los Angeles Times photograph. This is a still of it, a still photograph. Now, they didn't have CGI and all that stuff to fake any of this back in 1942. This is real footage. So in other words, what they did is they recreated this over the bowl. They took that Luciferian all-seeing eye and they made it this over the bowl, implying that Lucifer is not just a fallen angel, but an alien. You know, or coming back in an anti-gravity craft or something like that. But you know what, Tim? They always show these things and it's subliminal, but they're, they're also coding it out to those who know about this stuff. And so they'll be able to put out the right messaging. So it's, you know, part of it is for the public, but the other part of it is for the brotherhood to see these things. And when I see something like that, it's telling me the plan. And the plan is, you know, when Satan comes and basically goes to possess Charles, he's going to come saying, we're here to help humanity, you know, and, you know, and this is how they unite the whole world. I, I can see it as plain as day. Yes. Well, I'll say a little bit more about that. But you asked me earlier about Armageddon, right? And about quote unquote aliens and, and their role. So behind the scenes, uh, you know, apart from putting these dangerous creatures all over the solar system and spoiling it for mankind so that we ourselves could not um, safely or effectively expand to these other worlds, humanity couldn't in the future, because either they're populated with dangerous life, right? Or, you know, we're gonna go there and get eaten, or God has made them not really very habitable if they're habitable at all, because of the destruction that was wrought in judging all of that to start to annihilate it, okay? So we know at the end of the millennial kingdom, God's gonna create a new solar system at a minimum, maybe a whole new universe, but he's gonna make new heavens and a new earth, right? Mm -hmm. So at a minimum, our solar system is going to be replaced at the end of the millennial kingdom. New earth, new planetary bodies, presumably a new sun, you know, in our solar system. And at that point, no longer fallen and not damaged like what has happened, you know, since Noah's flood and right before. But uh, in the meantime, all these thousands of years, uh, there's been these interactions with mankind by these humanoids, you know, who've masqueraded as gods or, 
creatures that were involved in the quote-unquote evolution or creation of mankind, this kind of thing. You know, they set out early on, the Nephilim did, to be their own gods over their own worlds. Not just to spoil God's creation and remake it in their own image, you know, but to supplant God in every way, kind of like the devil over them, their father, the mm -hmm. devil, right? Wanted to be God and usurp his throne, right? These are like mini Satans, if you will, taking after their own father, the devil, and their own, their own quote-unquote God to be quote-unquote gods over their own worlds. Very much like what Mormonism teaches, only in this case it's Nephilim instead of three human beings evolving into gods, you know, as Father, Word, and Holy Spirit, or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, Mormons are polytheists, and they think they can evolve into gods like the Father, the, you know, the Word, and the Holy Spirit did, according to them. Well, listen, there's a big movement in the Christian, yeah. so-called Christian church that is saying this now. It's called the NAR movement. No, oh, I have to look it up. I haven't heard of that. Oh, my goodness. Okay. It, it's a, it's in tens of thousands of churches, Tim. Wow. They do the Seven Mountain uh, philosophy and the manifest sons of God. Essentially, what they say, in essence, and I don't want to sidetrack you, but they say, essentially, that um, Jesus didn't become God until he was baptized. So they bring the deity of Jesus Christ down, and they, and they make us equal with him, Right. And so wow, you that's... will be just like Jesus. And that's, and I'm telling you, it's almost all these preachers on YouTube and these prophets and that, they all hide this. And the NAR, New, New Apostolic Reformation is what it's called. It's like a secret society. They all deny they're in it, but they all have the exact same talking points. Wow. Well, uh, we know those are false teachers and false prophets in the last they're days, right? They're rampant right now. Okay, and they're they're given to demonic deception when they're making that kind of a claim. So we we'll be like Christ, but not in the sense of deity, not ever no. in that sense. No, so, no, we're never the creator. Yeah, and we'll know as we're known, like He knows, but not because we're deity, because He shares His knowledge with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we have the same Holy Spirit, but He has it without measure. No Christian will ever have the Holy Spirit without measure. Only the Messiah has the Holy Spirit without measure because He's God incarnate. He's God, and he gives to us our portion. Yep, he's the head, and we're little bits and pieces in the body. So, yeah. All right, so that being said, um, and we're not little gods either, folks. That's not what I mean, so don't confuse <laughs> me on that. We're not gods, period. We're just his creatures with whom he's sharing his inheritance. Yeah. We okay. become kind of the God-man because he was a new Adam. But Well, we're, not... we're joined... Yeah, we're not gods, and we don't become the God-man ourselves. Though we do become eternal because he sustains us eternally. Right, because of the new God. creation. Yeah. So, all that uh, being said, um, you have these, these fake aliens, the humanoid ones with the craft, and they're not, they don't all look like us. There are some that look almost exactly like us who might actually be fully human from breakaway civilizations, who had left with an Nephilim and worshipped them as if they were their gods, you know, pagans, right? Or they might be slightly different from us genetically. They could be chimeras, but they're very close to humans, and they're typically referred to as Nordics because they look almost identical to us, and they're, but they're long-lived, supposedly. They have lifespans similar to mankind prior to Noah's flood. So, so they're coming in some of the craft. Then you've got reptoids and insectoids, which are, they have genes in common with us like the others, but, but they don't look uh, human. And yeah, 
like the Greys, you know, people have seen images of the Greys, you know, like Whitney Strieber popularized images of the Greys, the big bulbous eyes and this kind of thing. You know, they don't have sexual reproductive organs like we do, like the Greys don't. And they absorb nutrients through their skin. And they have these big bulbous, almost insect-like eyes, okay, which is supposedly some sort of a dark lid or lens over the actual eye behind it. But in any case, they're spindly creatures and they're weak-bodied. They're not physically strong. They're humanoids. They can't reproduce on their own. These humanoids cannot reproduce on their own. You know, the non-human ones, which is pretty much all of them, except maybe the Nordics. Um, they can't reproduce on their own. So they abduct human beings, and in laboratory-like settings, they're reproducing race after race after race of counterfeit aliens, these humanoids, hoping to achieve self-reproduction. You know, through gen through constant genetic manipulation, but they're taking biological materials from abductees, human men and women, to keep this thing going, this scam going. You and, know, they, and it's they, more than a scam. In the end. Cows as well, and you know the uteruses, and they're taking specific things because they're useful in their efforts to produce the humanoids. Yeah, they even take um, stem cells from behind human eyeballs, you know, from some of the abductees, and put the eyes back in the sockets afterwards. The eyeballs, stem cells from behind the eyes. So they do a lot of crazy, wicked stuff. But anyway, they mostly, you know, they return the humans mostly intact, as far as we know. Most of them aren't killed, uh, but they often have scars. Sometimes they have implants, these kinds of things. And they don't have a memory. Their memory is, you know, they're brainwashed. They're wiped before they're returned, generally. Uh, but then, then you get these common stories from people who begin to realize something's happened to them. And they all tell a very common set of stories about what happens to them aboard the, tra the craft. People who don't know each other, never met each other, never talked to each other, often haven't talked to another human being about what they experienced, but telling the same stories, you know, when they do come out about it. So, um, you know, almost identical accounts. So that being said, um, it's a real phenomenon. And what's happening is these fake aliens are producing themselves, right? But at the same time, they've introduced themselves to the military-industrial complex behind the scenes, certain elements of it, and also certain governments. And they've said, you know, we were involved in creating mankind. See, we have genes in common. And we've been looking after mankind for hundreds of thousands of years, and we're here to make sure you don't wipe yourselves out. So one of the major things that happens aboard these craft, apart from the medical aspect, is brainwashing human beings into eco-fascism, literally and they're being climate change activists, literally, aboard the craft, where they'll show these abductees beautiful scenes of Earth, right? And then very, very ugly, you know, industrial scenes with lots of pollution and so forth, impressing upon the abductees how humanity is destroying the ecosystem of the Earth and how the, the quote-unquote aliens want to be here to help us not do that and not blow ourselves up with nukes and this kind of thing. You know, and to make everybody climate activists behind, you know, to believe the eco-fascist lies, etc. There's a whole set of programs around that that happen aboard the craft. At any rate, um, they're introducing themselves to the governments and they're saying, we're the good guys. And by the way, there are these other quote-unquote aliens out there who might want to attack and take your planet, you know, or annihilate mankind. But we'll help you. So you let us engage in our abduction program and I'm hypothesizing here, okay, yeah, based on a lot of information and data. So I think this is correct. But they're saying, and if it's not exactly correct, it's very close to correct. They're effectively saying to the governments behind the scenes and to, these, to the military industrial complex, 
you let us do our program of the abductions and work on fixing ourselves biologically. We used to be able to reproduce. We can't anymore because we took this so far that, that we've damaged our own evolution. And we can use genes from humans and other creatures on earth, but especially humans, to try to fix ourselves so that we can produce a version of ourselves going forward that's able to reproduce again. So you let us engage in that. Don't interfere with it. Don't try to shoot our craft down like you've been doing, you know, this kind of thing early on. And we'll give you the technology. We'll bring you up to speed on enough of the technology to where you can work with us to defend your planet. We're here to defend you after all, not to destroy you. We'll, we'll work with you. We need you also. We'll work with you to defend your planet in case you know the bad guys come along and want to take your planet or something like that. So they're going to paint Christ and his angels at, at Armageddon as invading aliens here to not just judge mankind, but to destroy mankind and take the earth kind yeah. of thing. And, and get mankind delusionally, not just to believe that, you know, the aliens created us because we have genes in common, but they're our friends here to help us, right? And, and to bring us up to speed so we can use more advanced weapons <clears throat> and craft against the Lord and his angels at his coming. It's all a massive charade. It's, it, it, it's exactly a massive charade. And... They, this has been planned for so long, and it's just been bringing it up and more and more and more. Um, yep, and when we talk about Charles and this, this fake Lucifer as alien, you know, motif at the Birmingham event last year, uh, his father, Prince Philip, had a whole wall and room dedicated to UFOs and following the phenomena and met with the top people on Earth, you know, tracking the phenomena military and otherwise, classified and otherwise. And actually, uh, it's reported that one of the craft with a human-looking humanoid, uh, mostly human-looking but telepathic, uh, came to Philip's home while he was there, landed, and a, and a quote-unquote alien got out and communicated with Philip, including telepathically, and they had some conversation. And then he left. Now, this is Prince Charles' father. So in other words, that family, at a minimum starting with Prince Philip, but probably going back earlier, had a fatuation with quote-unquote aliens and UFOs. And ostensibly, minimally, his father met with uh, one of the quote-unquote aliens to learn about their agenda and so forth. Now, at Charles' investiture in July 1969, as Prince of Wales, that round gray Welsh slate platform atop which the thrones were placed and where the crown was put upon his head and all that, under the, under the perspex canopy, that clear canopy overhead with the badge of the Black Prince on it, above it, on its, mm -hmm. on its uh, we'll call it a roof for lack of a better description, but that clear canopy. Uh, so over the heads of those who are on the thrones, meaning Charles, his mother, and Prince Philip, that round platform from above looks like a UFO. On purpose. Shaped to look like a disc, like a metallic disc. Yeah, like a gray disc. And it's also multiple other things at the same time. It's a juridic Logan stone. It's tied into witchcraft because of another thing. This is all documented, by the way, in the second edition of the Antichrist and the Cup of Tea. Some of that in the first edition. Um, even the UFO part is partially documented in the first edition. It's mentioned in it. But the bottom line is that family, the British monarchy, is tied in with the fake aliens besides the military-industrial complex being tied in with them and various national governments. 
but but let's also get this straight. So the so fake aliens, you know, and there's fallen angels as well who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so, who are communicating and have been communicating with these families for centuries. Well, let's let's trace the lineage of quote unquote aliens. So the first real aliens, if you want to call them that, are angels. God didn't right. create them here on Earth. They originate off Earth, and ostensibly they were created right before mankind on the fourth day of the week of creation when he made the stars. You know, angels are likened to stars in scripture. Mm -hmm. So ostensibly the fourth day of the creation week in Genesis is when they were made. And then the sixth day, of course, is when God made mankind two days later. So, uh, So there was a brief period in which the Lucifer could be jealous of God and want to usurp his throne and be cast out of heaven. Okay, and they had knowledge from the beginning like Adam did. You know, when God created Adam, He didn't have to teach him to speak or teach him language or teach him how to name the animals. The knowledge was in his head the moment he took his first breath. He didn't go to school. God gave him the knowledge. Presumably it's similar with the angels, you know, the original angels, okay? Um, The ones, and I say that because I'm not someone who who thinks that angels cannot reproduce. I believe they can. You know, I believe they can and they do. Well, somehow they created the Nephilim they had, well, it isn't just that they, so, you know, there are people out there trying to claim that that was just done in laboratory type settings or scientifically through genetic manipulation or something like that for the Nephilim. That is not true. That is a false claim. The Nephilim were angel-human hybrids and they had angelic nature, part of the angelic nature in them supernaturally. It also says though that this, this group of fallen angels who did this saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. And they desired them. They lusted for them. If they weren't sexual creatures, they'd have no such desire. Right. Because they were strange flesh. They wouldn't lust for them no matter what they looked like. You know, that desire just wouldn't have been their period. Okay, so they were sexual creatures. And they did reproduce with human women, some of them. And that means they're capable of reproduction. Okay, so the original angels are the original quote-unquote aliens, if you want to call them aliens. After them came the Nephilim, and you can call them part alien if you want to call the angels aliens, right? Mm-hmm. Human-angel hybrids. Beyond that, they're all fakes. They're corporeal creatures that have been manufactured in laboratory-like settings. And here's the interesting thing, too. A disembodied Nephil, a killed Nephil, you know, a Nephil is the singular form of Nephilim. A disembodied Nephil, a killed Nephil, is a demon. That's what the demons are. That's why demons are different from angels. They can both possess bodies. You know, like Satan possessed Judas. He entered his body. Right. right? Satan, Satan's not a demon. He's a fallen angel. You know, he's a cherub, one of the top fallen angels. So Satan can possess a body, but he has no desire to do that. Angels can manifest. Some have, some have entertained angels unaware, right? They mm-hmm. can manifest and look human if they want. They can. Apparently, enough to deceive those with whom they're, you know, walking or whatever, talking or whatever, to think that they're dealing with just other men, potentially, right? So marvel not, you know, if if Satan manifests, you know, as an angel of light, and then goes on to tell us, or as, you know, his messengers as ministers of light, right? And then it goes on to say, some have entertained angels unaware, right? Okay. But when we get past the Nephilim, when you get into demons, the disembodied Nephilim, they can possess creatures. And guess what? 
they can possess a fake alien body. A secondary because they're looking for a host. They're yeah. Disembodied. In other words, if they want, they can possess one of these fake alien bodies, right? And and then they're a secondary nephil, if you will. That that fake alien while the nephil while the demon is in them. Okay, so demon or demons. So you know, all that being said, we're dealing with with fallen angels with demons. Uh, and with there were some Nephilim that survived the flood off Earth, you know, and presumably in space in their craft, who weren't destroyed on Mars or the Moon or Earth when Noah's flood took place on Earth. So some small number of Nephilim presumably survived for some period of time, but they're corporeal like us. They can die. The, the spirits don't. The demons don't die. You know, any more than angels die or any more than our spirits will die. Uh, you know, ultimately that we either live with God in his kingdom or we spend eternity in hell and torment, but right. we Separate. continue for We continue forever, you know, one place or the other. So, so the point is you have demons They're They're not really aliens unless you want to say they're hybrids, you know, of humans and fallen angels, which they are. And then you've got these fake aliens who aren't actually aliens at all. You know, they originate on earth. Yeah. But then you yeah, then you can get into something like a breakaway civilization, right? And if such a thing exists, right? If it really does, and we don't know for sure. But if it really does, then there could be humans born on other planets, you know, more technologically advanced than us, saved the same way we would be today, you know, who grew up as pagans or whatever, coming to earth and learning the truth about Christ and getting saved. You know, I think that's unlikely, but not impossible. And then there are subsurface uh, civilizations ostensibly on Earth, beneath Earth's surface, like in mm -hmm. Antarctica in some areas. You know, we don't know how old those are or if they got destroyed in the flood, and they would have been in the flood, but came back right after the flood and went back into caverns or whatever, you know, beneath the Earth or stayed in Antarctica, it froze over, and now they're in, you know, ice caves or something like that. We don't know. But there is plenty of testimony to, to suggest that subsurface civilizations of fake aliens exist on Earth today. Yes. So they can also be coming from under the surface surface of the planet today. Yeah, and, and deep in the ocean. The surface. Yes, and under the ocean also. So those are all real, genuine possibilities. And, and I would suggest that some combination of those possibilities is reality. And it's going to be a great show that he's going to put on. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's going to be a show. Right? Well, it's going to be stunning. I mean, here you have the Lord coming with his angels, you know, and some of the angels will be involved, like he'll, he'll have uh, the devil and the false prophet and the Antichrist cast down to hell, the devil down to Tartarus, the lowest depths of hell, you know, and chained. But the Antichrist, Charles, I'll just say he's Charles, King Charles III, and the false prophet, whomever that ends up being, you know, the final Pope of Rome or whomever, uh, whether it's Francis or some other Pope or somebody else, whoever that is, you know, will be cast down to hell. But they'll be laid hold of by one or more of the Lord's angels, you know, as they're cast down. But Yeshua, Jesus, when he comes, will annihilate the militaries of the nations, you know, gathered to fight that battle of Armageddon by himself. He'll speak yeah. the word. He'll cut them down with that sword that proceeds from yeah. his mouth. Just like okay. that, you know, but literally tools together. He just speaks and they, you know, that's it. Well, he'll just slice them in two and all the blood will flow literally to the horse's bridles. They'll just, that blood yeah. will just gush from their bodies 
as he mows them down literally by speaking the word. Hundreds of millions of men at the same time, if you can conceive the numbers. So that it's like a lake of blood in Israel for the space of 200 uh, you know, furlongs or whatever it is, like you know, more than 100 miles, like 160 miles. I forget exactly what it is. I yeah, have to go look at the calculation. But and you're talking basically, five feet, right? You, yeah, you're talking, well, the blood will splash that high, but you're talking the whole space, more or less, of the modern nation of Israel, you know, where most of the modern Israeli population is. He's just going to mow God's enemies down right there by speaking the word. And my point in all that is the angels aren't really doing much other than dealing with, the, with um, Satan and his fallen angels. Christ is going to deal with mankind in all of that, you know, fallen mankind. And we, the church, the resurrected or translated believers, will be observers, witnesses to what is done. And, you know, that's part of what is described in one of the Psalms, you know, and I, I get the left and right sides mixed up, but basically it's, you know, 10,000 will fall to one side of you and 1,000 to the other, and you'll see the destruction of the wicked with your eyes, but it won't come near you to touch you. You know, and that's when, of course, we're protected in our eternal bodies. But we will go through some challenging times getting there. <laughs> There's no doubt. We will. We will. And, you know, it tells us that the Lord himself is going to tread the wine press by himself. And uh, I'll just show the passage for a moment. You know, that he is the one who's going to do that by himself. That's the grape judgment. Well, yes. In Revelation, we, we know it as that but it's described a little bit differently in Isaiah. And I commonly get the passage mixed up. I always think it's between Isaiah 60 and 63, or Isaiah 60 and 66, but I actually think it's in 63, because I recently had a gaffe trying to find it. <laughs> and an interview made me remember where it was. So Isaiah 63, it's right here. You know, it says, he has trotted them in his anger, trampled them in his fury, their blood is sprinkled on his garments and he stained all his clothes, right? And right above that, it says he's trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with him. And this is definitely the Lord. Yeah. Yep. The day of vengeance is in his heart. The year of his redeemed has come. You know, what we were reading about there at the end of Daniel 9, um, Daniel 9, you know, that 70th week, but the purpose mm -hmm. of the 70 weeks to bring in righteousness, etc. Well, at the end of that, it's the redemption of his children, right? In this case, Israel, etc. So that only believers are left alive on earth. But here, it's about the year of the redeemed, redeeming Israel, right? Saving Israel, for example, from this massive invasion by the nations under the devil and the Antichrist and the false prophet. So... That's Isaiah 63, but it's the Lord himself who will trample the winepress, and we will be witnesses. So you know what? There's so many people right now, Tim, that are out there looking for justice, and, you know, we see these people breaking laws, and, you know, we want, but we are going to see justice, and it's going to be much more just <laughs> and probably you know, the consequences severely more than what we could imagine or desire here in the flesh on earth. And the Lord's going to do it for us. I'll say one thing since you bring that up. Uh, when I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy, the year I became a believer, 
And I was invited to this home church to go to uh, some Bible studies. And I was this secular Jewish young man who, you know, Israelite, a Cohen, who uh, didn't care about God. I was a New Ager, really, in my viewpoint, if anything, and a pagan, if anything. And I told classmates I'm an atheist, but really I was an agnostic and I didn't know the definition. I didn't know the difference in the definitions. Kind of embarrassing, right? Like I had a classmate once, a very attractive upperclassman, a female at a, at a cadet uh, event, like a ball and so forth. And we were dressed in the equivalent of our tuxedos, which was our mess dress. Uh-huh. And she said, my, you look dapper. I mean, this is a girl I thought was very attractive. I liked her. She was a Christian. And I didn't know the definition of dapper. I thought she was telling me I looked down sullen (laughs) so embarrassing right so there's reasons we want to know the definitions of words but yeah so i went to this bible study you know called myself an atheist really i was an agnostic and at this bible study it was a home church you know in the basement of a pastor actually in colorado springs guy named richard blanche that was his name and uh he was reading at one point from the book of isaiah and he was reading isaiah uh, 53, you know, where the Messiah is to be a guilt offering and a sham for Israel, you know, for, for our guilt and also for our sin. And what he was basically pointing out in not so many words is that there's justice in the end. And I realized at that time, because I'd been thinking before that, Jeff, that, uh, you know, it'd be better for mankind to just be wiped out and for something better to evolve in our place rather than humanity annihilate all life on earth with nuclear weapons or something like that, because we're so close to doing that. Yeah. So I thought, you know, we're so wicked and so so destructive, you know, maybe something better would come in our place if we were just wiped out, right? So I was thinking to myself that it would be better if we were wiped out and something you know, else evolved in our place so that the rest of nature could survive and there'd be something better in our place, you know, eventually was what I was thinking, you know, toying with that notion. And it was in that context that I was initially invited to go to this Bible study. And I said to this classmate, what's it about? And he said, uh, prophecy. And I said, oh, I didn't know there was prophecy in the Bible. But you know, I was interested in the occult because I'd been around New Age parents and uh, astrological charts and tarot card readings and this kind of thing. And I thought, well, maybe there's something to it. I don't know, maybe. And my stepmother's mom was somebody who actually did astrological charts and had done my own for me, a custom chart, right? All this stuff and uh, telling me ostensibly about my future, yada, yada, right? I'd even gone to see a tarot card reader to have her read my future before all of this. I think it might even been the same summer. Strictly (laughs) out of curiosity, right? This is just all curiosity on my part. Says classmate says there's prophecy in the Bible. And I said, well, I didn't know that. So that was the hook that got me to go. And then we got, after some number of weeks, to Isaiah 53, and I thought, oh, there's justice in the end. And literally, in that moment, God did a miracle in my heart, and I believed. No rationality. I had not heard the gospel, you know, the way that we would share it with somebody yet. And I asked to pray with that pastor to receive the Lord. Just that there was justice coming. That's it. That was all it was. And How unusual is this? Yep. That was the thing that... that the Lord just took hold of me, and when I prayed to receive the Lord right then, uh, I physically felt the Holy Spirit enter me. I mean, physically. And I've never heard anybody else say something like that. I physically felt the Holy Spirit enter me, and just everything was different after that. I hadn't read Scripture yet, but you know, I went back to my dorm room at the academy. This was a, um, 
a weekend, you know, uh, a Sunday, and I went back to my dorm room and just started to do all the same things, listen to all the same music, etc. And nothing was sitting right with me in my yeah. spirit, but I had no idea why. And uh, so, you know, eventually I had the pastor buy me a Bible, started reading it, and then I started understanding, okay, now I know why this is bothering me. And I got rid of all these things. I infuriated a lot of my classmates, including other classes, upper and lower classmen, because I destroyed thousands of dollars worth of albums rather than giving them away or selling them. Literally broke them and threw them down the trash chute in front of my classmates. And they were angry. I even had a classmate steal an album and they could have been kicked out of the academy for that. But they, they had a, went, a record burning at a Pentecostal church that was uh, uh, near my house. And this is before I was a Christian. And I went in there yeah. and saved as many albums as I could and ran with them. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, this was my mentality. It's not good for me. It's not good for you. I'm not selling it or giving it to you either. And, and so I did that with a variety of things. In fact, my own version of a book burning. And I purged that stuff from my life at that time. And, you know, before I was a mature believer, before I had read scripture, et cetera, very much. And that's how I got saved though. It was this notion of there's justice in the end. You, you, you know what I hear from this though, Tim? The justice in the end, what that means is you all of a sudden, to me, it means you all of a sudden have fear of the Lord. Yes. But also knowing that God wasn't going to let mankind annihilate the earth or life on earth. He has his own plans for it and he can make them happen. Yeah. He's going to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. But without, not, with, not by annihilating humanity or the rest of life. And also the fact, of course, that I learned in those studies over the course of those weeks that God created life on earth. Yeah. Young earth creationism, in other words. And when I believed, I thought, okay, I don't get it. I don't understand it. You know, I don't know how, but I believe it happened. And... So he spoke things into existence. I'd heard that. And uh, if he could do it then, he can do it again. You know, if life gets annihilated or some species gets annihilated, he can easily bring it back. Well, time apparently is an issue for him. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And he can preserve it too if he wants so that it's not annihilated. Tim, you are so fascinating. Uh, you're one of the most brilliant men I've ever talked to. I, and I mean that sincerely. I'm not uh, trying to, you know, flatter you or anything like that. But you are so knowledgeable on so many topics. And uh, just the your ability to catch the small words in the scriptures, uh, I think, is a lesson that I'm really taking away from you in this. And so... It's helping me in my walk, and I hope it is. I, I know it is with many of the audience as well. Uh, Tim, as soon as we're off the air, I'm just going to book you again. Um, <laughs> I guess I can't get you every week, but I, I want to keep getting you on here as often as possible. My audience really, really loved you. They were excited when I announced you were coming back on. And uh, and there's just so many topics. I want to get into the thousand-year reign. I want to talk about beyond the yeah. thousand-year reign. Uh, the solar yeah. flares and stuff. There's just so many topics. And I have enough knowledge on most of the topics that I can at least help keep the conversation going. <laughs> All right. Well, praise God. Let's do it. Uh, yeah. Praise God. Hey, thanks everyone for listening. Go to his website, prophecyhouse.com. And really, 
Um, get get his book at least, uh, the uh, Antichrist and a Cup of Tea, second edition. It's got so much in it. As he mentioned, there's the it touches on the aliens. There's all kinds of evidences in there. And uh, this is really the culmination of decades and decades of research. And he's putting out so much material in the next, well, short period of time that he's been working on for years. And I really think it's worth considering uh, a purchase and and just considering his work. Listen, if... Uh, Thank you, Jeff. Let me, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just give a brief summary of what's there on the yeah. site for people to Please. get. And let me say something too. I don't make money from this. And I haven't. I've put hundreds of thousands of dollars of my own money in this, and I can't keep going with it unless people want to offer some sort of support. Ultimately, the purpose of um, doing all this is to get the books into the hands of pastors and other church leaders, you know, throughout the world, sooner rather than later, I hope. But especially the Antichrist and the Cup of Tea, you know, right now, the new edition. So if we go up to Prophecy House's website, which is my publisher, and it's just prophecyhouse.com, P-R-O-P-H-E-C-Y-H-O-U-S-E.com. Today, folks, you'll see two books on the site that you can get right now. And that's North Korea, Iran, and the Coming World War. Behold, Red Horse deals with the second seal of the apocalypse and what's about to happen, you know, leading to World War III right before the Great Tribulation itself comes. Then, of course, the Antichrist and the Cup of Tea. And although this is the cover of the uh, first edition, including here, it's actually the second edition that is um, shipping uh, very soon, like in weeks. The new edition, which wait. is massively I've updated. I've been waiting a long time, it seems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's massively updated. So you can get that now, but things that I've worked on for as long or longer in many cases, that'll be coming out in the next two to three years. Three multi-volume series, Jeff, and about 40 books overall, give or take a few. I haven't precisely counted them. A lot of books are coming. <laughs> But anyway, the, my magnum opus is this Messiah History in the Tribulation Period series. And the Antichrist and the Cup of Tea was originally just an appendix to this. So this will be coming out um, the end of this year or the end of next year in that time frame. Uh, a very, very important series. And it is a systematic theology done from a Messiah-centered perspective. There is no other systematic theology like it in existence. And it's strictly scripturally based. So the final volume in this shows that all the weeks of scripture are patterned after the crucifixion week of Christ, including the week of the creation itself. And that knowledge, along with the rest of what's in this series, affords the ability, among many things, to know the sequence of events and who the actors are in those events for the tribulation week in a granular fashion, in a very precise fashion more than people would have thought possible. And that's based upon what was already fulfilled in the week of history and already fulfilled in the crucifixion week and already fulfilled in the week of the creation, for example, that all have the same pattern. So that's, that's a lot to describe, but we read the description there, folks. Then there's the solar apocalypse series, the one that deals with the fake aliens and what really happened in our solar system and on earth, and the evidence for what's really out there in our solar system. And this is hugely important, much more important than people would realize just from the perspective of fake aliens. One of the reasons is that there are fossils all over comets and asteroids, Jeff. 
And because of that, it shows that comets and asteroids are not building blocks for planets, they're debris. Yeah. And when you know that, all the models for the formation of our solar system that macroevolutionists have, like old age physicists, have immediately fail. They're impossible. Like in one fell swoop, you've destroyed everything that's necessary supposedly for macroevolution to occur over billions of years. So this series literally destroys uh, macroevolution or what's called evolution commonly, in addition to giving the real explanations on things and actual hard evidence. So in this series and in a corresponding coffee table book, and there'll be more than one of those books eventually, but I show actual examples of creatures and fossils exposed on multiple planetary bodies in our solar system, including Titans. And in the first volume, I will be showing evidence for a Titan on Earth, here on Earth, that's about 550 feet in length, that is partially exposed on Earth's surface and could be excavated today. Wow. A giant sea creature, mostly intact. It's not up near Dwarfing. Loch Ness, is it? <laughs> What's that? It's not up near Loch Ness, is it? <laughs> no, in fact, it's not like any dinosaur on Earth people have seen. It's much larger, and it has a different appearance, and it's a sea creature. Wow. And it's one of the, one of the chimeric hybrids that died in the flood here on Earth. But it's just one example. But it's a very good one, and it could be excavated today. We know where it is, and have 3D scans of it, in fact, radar scans. So... Um, at any rate, then the other series is called Israel, quote unquote, peace and the coming world war. It's mentioned here, the great tribulation, great tribulation, uh, looms or something like that. That's going to be retitled when it's published to show effectively that Israel is being prepared, the nation of Israel for a national crucifixion, death and burial. That's what the great tribulation really is for Israel, Jeff mm -hmm. in type with Israel as God's only begotten son, the nation of Israel. That's right. The know, nation. Yeah, the nation is called that for a reason, and the nation is called Israel for a reason. You know, you've got all these Christian teachers out there claiming that Jacob was a schemer, right? And that Israel, he was called Israel, and that he was a schemer, this kind of thing. And we know that he schemed to get the birthright from Esau. Yes? Yeah. But, but God hated Esau. And he loved Jacob. It tells us that explicitly in Scripture. That's right. The Lord himself says, my soul hates Esau, but Jacob I have loved. And I have not observed iniquity in Jacob. That's what the Lord says about Jacob. And the Lord named Jacob Israel. Well, the name Israel, what it really means is man sees God. That's the literal translation of the word Israel. Yeast for man, Ra for see, El for God or man sees judge, meaning God as judge, okay? So, that being said, Israel was called God's firstborn son, his only begotten son, just like Messiah was called that. And, uh, and reversing that, Yeshua, the word Israel was used of him, right? I've called my son Israel out of Egypt. That was quoted in Matthew of Yeshua when he came out of Egypt, right? After he'd been there for a while with his parents. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the nation of Israel is a national type of the Messiah to the other nations of the world. And consequently, the nation of Israel is to be subjected to the equivalent of crucifixion, death, and burial. And at the end of the tribulation week, to be resurrected. And that's why when we read in Romans 11, 
What shall there, you know, when it talks about Israel as a nation coming to faith in Yeshua, finally, the surviving third, what shall it be but life from the dead? That's what Paul said, right? He likened Israel coming to faith to resurrection from the dead. Yeah. Okay, so that being said, you can't be saved even as an Israelite unless you believe in Yeshua. I want to be clear about that. I'm not out there like someone like John Hagee who says that if you're a faithful Israelite, a Jew, you can be saved through the Old yeah. Covenant. That is heresy. It, it is. is apostasy. And it indicates, you know, if Hagee still says that, if he still believes that, that he is a non-Christian and that he's going to hell as a false teacher. <clears throat> so, you know, you can't be a Christian and at the same time not know that you must believe in Yeshua and Jesus to be saved, whether you're Jew or Israel, you know, whether you're Gentile is or Israel. The only way. The only That's way. It. That's it. That's right. So there are those three series coming and then a number of individual books. And I'll just mention one of those individual books and wrap this up. And that is, I also have a book coming on the Exodus from ancient Egypt. And that is uh, mentioned right here. Israel's sojourn in an Exodus from Egypt, the real dates and pharaohs. In that book, which is nearly complete, it might be published this year, we'll see. I identify the ancient pharaohs and, uh, you know, involved in ancient Israel's history, who they were, they're by, by name and by date. And I also identify who Joseph was, you know, who his pharaoh was, who Moses was, who his adoptive mother was, meaning their Egyptian names, uh, who the pharaoh of the Exodus was, etc. There's just one pharaoh in, in that whole history that I'm not entirely sure about, but probably I've nailed it. And so this book in one volume brings together more than all of the archaeologists have managed to do to date. And the purpose of it is to show Israel that the history is real because Israel's own archaeologists today don't believe the history. They don't even believe that the Exodus happened in many cases. And so consequently, they don't believe in Israel's promises to the land, you know, in the promised land itself. So being of Jewish descent, this is, uh, you're doing the same thing. You're ministering to Israel. Correct. This is, I mean, lots of Christians are going to find this to be a really interesting book. But the reason I did it is so that Israel would know, would know that the history is real. And well, I, I'm interested that, in all of this stuff, but the, the Messiah timeline one in particular, um, this, this yeah. is the, just because I feel we're so there, you know, please don't waste time. Get this out. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll add one last thing. You know, people have begun to watch that Messiah 2030. Um, I'd call it a made-for-TV movie, but I don't think it's been I, on TV. I'm actually going to be airing it on Thursday. Yeah, it's a well-done production. I, I haven't fully watched it myself. Um, I'm not in complete agreement that 2030 is the date uh, or that we can be that precise with some of the dates. Um, other than that, the one thing I will say about it is he got this pattern of, you know, four and seven that he's showing in the first, um, I don't know, 40 minutes plus in that, and I need to finish watching it. But that pattern was first brought out in this series. And I circulated a draft of this in the early 1990s around the country, more than 30 copies. And some people have those drafts still. But in that draft is this harmony of weeks at the end, in which I'm showing that pattern and showing that all the weeks of scripture are patterned after the crucifixion week with Christ being crucified on the fourth day and resurrected at the end of the seventh day. Mm -hmm. And fleshing that out here to an extent no one is, you know, no one knew to try to do before this series, 
you know, uh, other than maybe the apostles would have, they'd have had some clues about it. And the reason I say the apostles knew some of this is because they talked about us as the church being crucified and buried in and resurrected in Yeshua, in his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, right? Metaphysically, not just metaphorically. So they understood that while he was being crucified, we were being led as lambs to slaughter. When he was rising from the grave, we were rising from the grave in him and with him. So for us, it's separated across time, Jeff, right? You know, for us, it may be at the end of the tribulation week or for Christians after that, at the end of the week of history, right? You know, with death being at the midpoint of those weeks, like the fourth seal of the apocalypse, there's death for the midpoint of the tribulation week. Mm -hmm. Fourth millennium of history, the fourth day of the week of history. You had the Assyrian captivity all the way through the Roman invasion of ancient Israel. All of that was in the last eight centuries of the fourth day of the week of history, death at the midpoint of the week. And then Israel being buried, scattered to the nations after that from the fifth and the sixth days. So all that is to say this series brings it all out as a complete systematic theology as well, covering everything in scripture except church governance in this series. And then of course, you know, the Antichrist and Cup of Tea, that material separated into its own book, the actual identity of the Antichrist. So with that, I'll say, folks, you can see it again, prophecyhouse.com. That's where all my stuff will be available to get. And then do see YouTube. There's a lot of stuff up there for free, you know, where I'm presenting and sharing uh, some of the stuff from these uh, materials. And that's just, you know, youtube.com, <coughs> and then later my other social media channels, which you can see uh, uh, the links and so forth under the videos and, and my social media where I share those. So if I've actually got videos, one, of, uh, one of our listeners, Tim, who has been uh -huh. copying all of your work and systematically putting it on our Telegram channels. Oh, so wow. whenever you post an update or anything, it goes right to our channels. So Fantastic. Praise God. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks again, Tim, for being here. Uh, God bless each and every. That's what I, you know, I hope you just enjoyed this. It was just a conversation, more or less, and... Uh, and we talked for about half an hour before we even started recording. Right, I right. I spent a yeah. lot of time with with Tim, but uh, I know it went a little bit long. But I hope you got, there was so much. I, I, what do I name this is my challenge for the next half hour while I create some artwork for it. But what do I name this? Because we are all over the place, but God will provide. I don't um, know. Spir spiritual goodies from Tim Cohen. I don't know. clever. <laughs> <laughs> You're a brilliant researcher, but you're marketing maybe edge. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the only way this ultimately, you know, gets funded to share it with everybody. And time is short. So That's I need right. people who have the means to come along and say, you know, I want to support that and help make that happen and get these things into the hands of pastors and so forth throughout the world. And again, yeah, I don't make anything from it. You know, I live, I literally live below the poverty line, Jeff. And I have for several years so that I can do this myself. Well, I, I didn't, but now that I turned to this, I do. <laughs> Suffering yeah. for the Lord. <laughs> yep. But uh, hey, God bless you, Tim. God bless everyone else in the audience. And uh, hey, remember, love your God, love your family, love your neighbor as yourself, and make a difference in your community. Amen. Praise God. Right on, right on, right on. Right on radio. Right on radio.